So, good afternoon everybody and welcome to the um, Executive Office Committee meeting. Uh, the meeting will commence. We have members in the room and um, I think I've seen at least two or three members uh, on Starleaf. Uh, the committee meeting is of course being recorded and broadcast and people can just keep an eye on their mobile phones beside microphones. Uh, we have received no apologies at this stage but are there any apologies that members are aware of? Okay. Item two is the draft minutes uh, of the meeting held on the 9th of December at page five of the meeting. Are members content that they're a true reflection of proceedings? Okay, then we can sign the meetings and that's them ready to be handed back. Uh, matters arising, item three. On page 11 of the pack, there is a draft letter to the First and Deputy First Minister on the Common Frameworks process. As was mentioned during last week's session with the House of Lords Common Frameworks Committee, committees here have encountered some difficulties in scrutinising common frameworks because the agreed process to ensure parallel scrutiny across the legislators is not being followed by the executive departments. The EU Affairs Manager has gathered examples of the difficulties being faced by committees and these are included in the draft letter. The draft letter is asking that the First and Deputy First Minister clarify how they think the process should be working, uh, why the issues have arisen and the steps that they will take to ensure executive departments follow the Cabinet Office guidance on scrutiny. Now, we will have an opportunity to discuss this with officials in the new year, but this is just basically us highlighting the issues to the Executive Office Minister. So, are members content that the letter goes? Is it only Cabinet Office scrutiny that we're talking about? You know, because Principle 3 of the Common Framework, there hasn't been much of that that has crossed our desk, which is the All-Ireland and the North-South. It's all been about, you know, England, Scotland and Wales and trying to get conversion okay. where I can. But I haven't seen anything around the... Uh, the I suppose, um, Martina, um, the, the process that's to be followed by all the devolves um, to ensure there's a par parallel scrutiny. There was Cabinet Office guidance provided by Minister Chloe Smith. And um, it's just that it's been highlighted that that isn't being followed by our executive departments here. There are some committees, I think you might have even mentioned this yourself, getting documents before... You know, in Wales, for example, before we're getting them here, and it's just to ensure that parallel scrutiny um, happens. Do you get a sense, Martina, that there's a role for uh, for us and other committees in terms of the north-south element that we're yeah, maybe? You see, aren't? there's three principles that they said that the common framework were going to be measured against, and they were going to work within. And the third one was the All Ireland and north-south. We've strand two of the Good Friday Agreement. Mm -hmm. And what we have been receiving has been about maybe pressures that could be on the system because we were all consistently um, applying EU law across the island of Ireland and across Britain. Now that that has changed, we've got a protocol, so there's not going to be convergence, as we know, across, uh, across Britain and here, but there will be a times convergence across mm -hmm. Ireland. So mm -hmm. there need, we need to ensure that we're not only dealing with part of it, but we're dealing with it in its totality. So I think the letter, the letter also needs to reflect the fact that the third principle of the common framework doesn't seem to be presenting itself okay. uh, to this committee. And I can tell you to the Department of Infrastructure Committee, we were this morning, it had its, its first ever briefing on common framework. Just for, for clarity for my own understanding as much, because I think I want to know, is this one issue and that becomes an element to it, or is that a separate element that we could seek information? Because 
Uh, are common frameworks not just between, are they just not UK based as it is? And, and, that there are, or, and if, we're talk, if this letter is specific about common frameworks, but then the point you're making is that there is also common frameworks is one part and there is another part and that we're not getting, I mean, would it be... No, and it's contained within the common framework. The common framework is supposed to follow three principles, and one of them is the North-South All-Ireland principle okay. that needs to apply. Oh, OK. Well, that that hasn't really presented itself yeah. to yeah. us at all. Well, if I make reference to that, are our members content then that they don't need to see the draft as no. amended, that it's issues yeah. as amended yeah. to reflect those, your comments? Those comments. OK, yeah. and that would be useful okay. to get those, the, yeah. the, the feedback on that as well. OK, um... So, uh, as I say, officials are coming on the 13th of January, and, and actually that would be a, a good line mm -hmm. of inquiry with them at that yeah, date. Yeah. Um, and also, um, there were some suggestions as well um, at last night's debate about the involvement of the British Irish Council and Common Frameworks as well. So that sort of stuff can be explored um, in the, uh, at the meeting with officials on the 13th. Yep. Okay, members happy and content that we leave it there for that letter? Yep. I'm conscious maybe with communications there, just that we're, we're getting that screen somewhat. I'm sure it's not supposed to hey, be. Hey, Emma. Yes, Emma's there. Yeah, she's waving. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. The only one we can see, yeah, Emma. We can still see and hear you, so it just seems to be that I, someone is sharing on screen. Oh, there's Pat. Okay, so look, members, we'll move to item four, the Brexit oral evidence session with departmental officials on Brexit developments on page 21 of the meeting pack and pages four to 69 of the table pack are the relevant papers. Um, we have departmental officials in attendance to talk about the recent uh, Brexit developments. And we are, it's good, I, I looked down and you weren't there, I looked up and you're there. So we can uh, welcome to the room Andrew McCormick, the Director General of International Relations at the Executive Office, and Tom Reid, who's Director of EU Relations from the Executive Office, who's taking full advantage of being in the room. I think we lost you the last time, whenever you were on by, by telephone or Starleaf. And also then we have Lindsay Moore, um, who isn't, yeah, she's in the audience there, yeah. but hopefully we'll get Lindsay moved up into the spotlight yeah. as well. She's just on. Okay, on the phone, there we go. And Lindsay is able to join us, who's the Director of the European Division and Head of the Office of the Northern Ireland Executive in Brussels. Um, okay, so as ever, folks, the, uh, the session is being uh, recorded and Hansard will provide a transcript. Maybe if we pass over to yourselves, Andrew, to give us a, an update of things that have happened in the past week and then we can open up the questions from members, please. Grant, oh, thank you, Chair. Thanks for the opportunity to, to be here at, at a very interesting stage of the process. Uh, I think I've not a lot to say about the main negotiations. You can uh, see the, uh, the tweets and the readouts and the different bits of briefing as well as I can and, and uh, draw your own conclusions. Uh, I think still strong strong possibility of a deal despite all the um, steps that have been taken and the, the long long journey that we've been on. But it certainly makes it challenging in terms of how to manage the, the, the new year, uh, given that the uncertainty has lasted a lot longer than, than was expected. Um, and there'll be a lot of adaptation to do whatever happens uh, one way or the other. I think probably the main thing to focus on, and, and I won't say much, I'll, I'll, I'll give you give, uh, time to focus on, on what is of most concern to the committee, but uh, obviously a lot decided uh, last week 
um, important agreement between uh, the co-chairs of the Joint Committee, uh, and that's for formal ratification at the Joint Committee meeting tomorrow. Um, but uh, the decisions on the protocol uh, give some very, very important clarifications in relation to the way the protocol will operate, uh, issues that we've been debating and discussing uh, ever since it was signed in October of last year, or agreed October last year and ratified in January. Uh, so a lot, lot, a lot to be looked at there, a lot of detail to be worked through uh, to balance uh, what are necessary and vital interests from our point of view uh, in terms of the movement of goods in both directions uh, across the Irish Sea and uh, you know, how that reconciles with uh, the obligations under, um, under the protocol. So that's, that, that's, there's a, a way forward on all that. Uh, it, it's co quite complicated. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, just summarise briefly the areas where there, where, there is a, where there have been decisions. The decisions were, or the draft decisions, were published by UK government last Thursday night, and to cover the issue of the, the four, the, so several of the decisions, not, not all of the decisions that are specified in the protocol for the Joint Committee, as in a uh, decision on, on at-risk goods, uh, definition, uh, what, what does that actually mean in practical terms? Uh, so that's, that's moved on. Uh, there was the question of uh, the ceiling on subsidies for agriculture and fisheries that would be acceptable under EU state aid. Uh, that's that's resolved, and that's one of the ones that's probably more straightforward. Uh, there's the issue of uh, commission presence, uh, where an accommodation has been found, uh, a low-key, pragmatic uh, solution on that one. Uh, the, there's the fourth decision that's specified in the protocol is in relation to fish landings, the conditions that would apply uh, to ensure that uh, when um, vessels registered here land in their home port uh, they, that those are, that they're not liable for tariffs so that that's that there's detail to be worked out there still and that's probably linked in to the wider high level discussions on fisheries uh, that being such a, a major part of the main uh, negotiations uh, those are the, those are the specified decisions as it were uh, on top of that as we've discussed before in this in this committee the the other issues were in relation to uh, the detail around uh, movement of agri-food products from GB to NI, and so there are important uh, ways forward, important pathways agreed in relation to export health certificates, which was a massive concern for uh, the, the sector, for all agri-food importers, retailers. So a, a way forward, especially in relation to the vital issue of supermarket consignments. So that, that there's a way forward on that. Also, a way forward on the complex issues around uh, meat products, chilled meat products, all, all, all of that, which was uh, emerged uh, and, and needed to be resolved. And, and that, that's, that there's, there's a, a pathway forward on that uh, with a time limited uh, derogation. So, those are uh, also the, then the issue, two issues that were right at the heart of the Internal Market Bill. Uh, so, the question of exit declarations a way forward on that so that uh, UK government has committed to, to providing the, the, inform the essential information that is relevant to those in a different way and hence to minimise uh, the obligations on um, people moving goods, uh, on, on traders, that, that's, that's a big step forward and the, then the, the, a narrower definition of the issues in relation to state aid which helped us through on the 
uh, state aid issue that again was, was the, the so-called reach back provisions uh, that were controversial uh, in the internal market bill. So all of that achieved in time for uh, the government not to need to proceed with some of the controversial clauses both in the internal market bill and in the um, taxation bill uh, and that was clearly an important necessary step in relation to the negotiations uh, but the negotiations on the main FTA and all related issues continue and some of those obviously are affecting uh, vital interests here in relation to for example North-South Transport uh, data, data flow and all, all, all the other top issues that are of concern as we get ready, and getting ready is now the issue, helping to get turn this, these decisions into uh, maximum possible clarity for businesses and allowing that to move forward. So that's, that's main events. Uh, uh, you know, if, if we went back another week, it would have been just as long, but hopefully that's enough to set the ball rolling. Okay. Well, look. Th thank you very much for that. And and obviously, it's it's a landscape that has changed and changes regularly. Um, so we appreciate the difficulty that there can be in providing uh, updates. Um, and I suppose looking at the number of achievements that there were last week, it's no real achievement in a sense. They've come up with these decisions about two weeks before um, they're actually required. And certainly, I'm sure the achievements that were made last week between the two sides won't be felt as achievements on the ground by businesses and communities that are going to be impacted insofar as it would have been better to have known them four or five months ago rather than just a, a few weeks but such is the process of negotiations and they often do go down to the wire but um, appreciate and, and, and accept that there still are a lot of difficulties out on the ground for, for businesses and um, any uncertainty that's removed is helpful. Um, can I ask one processy question, and then I'll go into maybe a question of more more substance. Just in terms of where we are at the minute, you know, obviously the future trade agreement hasn't been agreed. But if that does, if for example that was sorted this week, what sort of process are we looking at trying to implement that? Because the, the end of the transition period is t two weeks on Friday. So you know, and and what sort of um, requirement will there be to? Uh, ratify any of that and, and is there any impact here on the assembly in terms of the two weeks or, or Christmas based weeks and, and is there a requirement for things to be done or are the things that can wait until January? So uh, it, it, to, to, for it to be properly and effectively implemented would require ratification on both sides which is as, as simple as need be on the UK side because uh, they they can take a they could take a bill through Parliament very quickly as as you know a few days is can be sufficient when when necessary uh, you know as we know well in relation to the various ups and downs of various provisions for Northern Ireland talks and that, 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 when they want, when when Westminster uh, can can go through the stages very very quickly and, and that's as we speak still possible in terms of if they if there was a deal. And the need to take a bill through Parliament that could be done. Uh, on the uh, European side, uh, the questions really are uh, what what is what is ultimately going to be required in practical terms. Uh, the clearly the the um, any agreement would be have to be confirmed by the member states in the European Council. So that that's that's uh, the fundamental necessity, uh, and it's obviously why 
the process continues in that sense. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the negotiators have a very clear responsibility and mandate from responsibility to and mandate from um, the council, as in the member states, and that that stands and, and is is still working out. The, the issue will will be uh, the role of the parliament. Uh, that there's a convention that that something like this would be subject to ratification. Would, would it would go to a number of committees in the parliament uh, and uh, then be subject to to, to vote. Uh, we're very. It's it's almost impossible. Almost, I say almost, because when when the will is there, sometimes anything can be made possible. But but uh, we'll we'll see what happens on that. Uh, Lindsay might might want to come in on this point because it's it's a, a very important element of, of how this works out and the way in which the, uh, the, the we've had some direct contact with with MEPs. Uh, sorry, back in around September, they were saying, oh, it really does need to be sorted in October to allow translation. Right. Uh, Legal scrubbing or for the legal text to be translated, understood, considered by the committees, reports by committees. That that's that would have been a good a good conventional process, um, but clearly that's squeezed. Uh, there, there's a lot of speculation about different ways in which this could proceed. Um, I think, in the, from the point of view of good government, uh, what is needed is certainty and clarity, certainty as to what is the law, what law applies and how that works out. Uh, I think there's, uh, again, coming back to the, this side of the, of the, uh, the water, uh, this side of the, of the um, English Channel, um, then, then you'd be seeing, the, the, the question would be asked is whether there's anything of in devolved competence, but again, there's no time for an assembly process, even if, if that was essential, but uh, maybe see if Lindsay wants to add on the um, European Council, European Parliament process. Okay, Lindsay. <clears throat> yeah, thanks, Andrew. And, I mean, as Andrew said, I mean, our understanding is that it could provisionally enter into force if there's agreement with the Council, but of course, the Parliament will want to have its task to scrutinise it and the committees. Um, you know, a number of committees that would be interested in this. Obviously, the committee that deals with trade, but also the internal market and external relations and constitutional affairs as well. So there, there are quite a few interested parties in this, and whether that would be possible, you know, even if there was agreement to, to have what that done before, and have a um, plan, and have a call on ad hoc plenary to do that, um, it is is quite it's um, so I think the Parliament themselves has indicated they'd be willing to do it early in the new year, um, and, and yes, I think that is just there's that sort of. We are very much, and you mentioned before about the lateness of decisions uh, in general, so we very much you know, really bypassed all of those deadlines that the institutions felt were necessary to, to have this all in place for the 1st of January. So um, we're a little bit in uncharted territories, I think it's fair to say on this. Um, but I know that there is sort of a, a willingness from uh, the institutions to try and um, facilitate it as much as they can. Okay. To, without picking at words, but you know, deal with it as best they can. I, I know it's you know just. Does that mean that if if it if it isn't, say if it was ratified or agreed by the council, but then had to go to the European Parliament and be washed through there? Does that mean that it's not officially in action until they've completed that process? And and if that was the case, what would happen to trade businesses? What what would they do if that took to the Third week of January. What would happen in those three weeks of January? Um, 
Or is that the uncharted waters you're talking there's, about? There's maybe the uncharted water there, but I think the, the key thing would be that if, if there's a, a provisional application, I take them in a legal application, so that therefore conforming with what is said in relation to the, that agreement. So okay. uh, I think there would be uh, it would be very unfortunate, highly to be avoided, to have businesses behaving for say three weeks as if there's no deal, and then a deal is taking effect only after formal ratification, far, far better to have the, the continuity <clears throat> and, and the, the essence, essence of provisional application. It would be making that legally defensible uh, and, and a, a basis on which people can, can actually comply with, with legal obligations. But this is where getting clarity, that, that clarity on this is, is really, really important uh, in the next, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. literally a week or so. You know. sure. Okay, um, then. Um, oh, yes. I would just say that my uncharted um, waters were about the sort of institutional procedure rather than okay. the application of the um, agreement as Andrew just pointed out, it would be, you know, provisionally applied. Okay, then, um, in a response, I think it was the question, I'm, I'm, I can't remember it was, mon, mon, it was Monday. Um, the economy minister suggested that, you know, as a result of Brexit, there would be very little impact and, you know, in terms of finances and the runs of finances, but then I think today, in in her committee, has highlighted that there might be about seventy million uh, of funding that 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 won't be there after Brexit. And we did work with the councils in terms of 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 listening to them um, and the pressures that they feel that they will face. And I suppose there is significant concern. Um, amongst a number of, of sectors that, that the finance that was there may not be there in the future. Um, hopefully it's still in the territory of may not and that it will actually be replicated, but there's no assurances for that. And I suppose I'm wondering, has an audit been done right across Northern Ireland civil service pinpointing exactly which funds of money uh, come from where under European funds and when they will dry up and what the replacement for them will be, A, or B, what the ramifications will be if there is no um, replacement funding and if so, is that something that this committee could be made available to us so that we can see what the impact of Brexit would be financially? No, that's, for, that's a very, very important uh, line of, of analysis and uh, I think we're, things are not certain at this point in time. Uh, the, the undertaking previously had been continuity and replacement of European funds. Uh, uh, that was part of what was said uh, at an earlier stage. Uh, the outworking of that and the way in which uh, the way this will be handled by UK government is you know, there's, there's more to come on that. There's more, more things to be said and said about that. Some of which will lie with uh, Department of Finance in their work both on the main budget and how that, that plays out, which is obviously a main topic for uh, ministerial consideration at the present time, at this, this, at this stage of the year, and then into um, Peace Plus uh, as an, an agreed element of, of what this um, was, was all looking at. So that, that's, that's, I don't think I have much to add to what you've probably heard before at this stage, because there's, there's a, a work to be done just to, to be absolutely clear uh, on um, a comparison of before and after, you know, and um, that, that, that's the, the anxiety uh, would be that uh, the 
previously promised continuity would not be fulfilled, and, and, and that's, that's probably where Minister Dodds was concerned. That, 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 that's, that's a familiar point that I've heard her making in other contexts. But Lindsay has probably some insight and detail on this. Yeah, Lindsay. I was just going to, um, I was just going to add that I think the Department of Finance colleagues last week did provide some briefing on this, and I know that they have, as Andrew said, they have been looking exactly at that across all the different funds um, that Northern Ireland has received, um, where it has received EU funding over the years. I mean, um, this is quite complex because you know the, the funds come to us in different ways. Some of it comes directly, some of it is where organisations within Northern Ireland have bid into what we call competitive funding pots within the EU. So we have looked at that across the board to see what that gap would be. And as I said, the Department of Finance colleagues have that. I think that was would have been the basis of some of the briefing that they did get you last week. Um, what is important uh, in terms of the future negotiations, as you know, there's still, you know, we have some clarity around the Peace Plus programme, which is um, sort of on one side, and again, I know that was raised uh, last week in the committee, but um, we are still waiting for confirmation of how the, what programmes the UK will sign up to um, as part of the future relationship agreement. And, and uh, I think we're primarily focusing on Horizon 2020, or the European Horizon Europe replaces it. And um, the uh, Erasmus program, but I do think as well there has been some indications that they may not join the Erasmus program. And uh, you know what um, comes from that, as I've said, is a conversation um, with the UK government about um, how they propose to replace that, because you know, both of those would be um, programs that uh, universities should be able to now, but also other sort of um, higher education and other and local government etc. would um, access quite a lot. And, and Lindsay, is that um, as somebody that's availed of many Erasmus Plus and, and Youth in Action programmes before it? Um, are, are they? Is that clarified? So if the, if the UK decides not to sign up that, then on the first of January, people cannot apply to them. Or is there a, a sort of? I know sometimes they used to run them on six or seven year rounds. So when we get to the end of the round, before we would have to opt out of those. I think for some of the Erasmus. They tend to be over a year rather than over, you know, some of the other programs are over five or seven years. I think for the Erasmus ones, I know that they had um, made arrangements for those to continue for the, the current year that just started, let's say this year, that might continue into next year. But yes, that would mean they wouldn't be able to um, access it from from next year on, let's say, from whenever the, the start of the year would be in, in 2021. But I do also know that they both. Um, that the UK um, is looking at sort of domestic placement for those as well, in terms of schemes that will be replacing it domestically. I don't have a lot of detail on that. That's again something that the Department for Economy um, colleagues are, are looking at, but uh, but it but it is something that's being um, explored. Well, as Delivering a programme to a group of young people that allows them to go to Finland and Lapland to, to replace that with you can go to Essex doesn't really sound as exciting for them, not much against Essex, but uh, I would hope that we might be able to get ourselves involved in a programme that allows us to look a bit broader uh, than, than, than just England, Scotland and Wales. But. Well, I think that's what the domestic programme will I mean. It's a UK funded programme that might look at uh, those international exchanges. 
Brilliant. It's good to hear. Good to hear. I'm going to uh, bring uh, Doug in uh, and them in the room, but can I just say, because of the nature of the Starleaf, can any of the other members that are on Starleaf that want to, to speak, if you use the hand, uh, raise hand function, it means then we can see here at the desk that you're looking to come in and we can call you in at that stage. But I'll pass to the Deputy Chair to Doug. Thanks, Chair. Um, uh, thank you for, for giving us a I mean, it's fast moving, isn't it? I mean, you, you prepare for one thing and all of a sudden something else happens. And, and you know, I feel for you in regards to that. Um, and we're in the same business of trying to catch up and keep up the pace with this. Uh, and it is moving at pace. Uh, can I maybe just drop into the weeds a little bit, Andrew, if you don't mind, on, on, a, on a couple of issues? And, and these might already be out there, but I'm just trying to clarify them. Could you give us your understanding of, as of the 1st of January... Um, how do we stand in regards to animal veterinary products, medications and stuff as of the 1st of, of January? Do we, in Northern Ireland, have to abide by EU regulations in regards to veterinary medications? So there's a 12-month adjustment period for human and veterinary medicines. That's one of the things that was announced last Thursday night. Right. Uh, there's a draft decision which is subject to formal approval at the Joint Committee and the European Council, but that's that's uh, favourable and helpful and allows time for adjustment. So ultimately there'll be a need to comply with the regulatory obligations that arise under the protocol, but there's a 12-month adjustment period. So, so uh, obviously our, our main engagement on that issue has been in relation to human medicine, so with, with Department of Health uh, and the Chief Pharma. We've had uh, important discussions uh, and, and you know, engagement between uh, Department of Health here and DHSC and the uh, MHRA, um, which is the, regula the regulatory authority for the UK, it, it, that, that's been working very well. But the same derogation, uh, the same adjustment period uh, applies to veterinary medicines as well. So that, that's, that's it, 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 there'll be a time to adjust that, that yes, uh, once that period ends, then uh, the protocol requires continued alignment as in so many things, uh, of the regulatory regime, but there's, there's, this, this means that any adjustments needed in in terms of how how goods move, uh, how, uh, you know, all the obligations on labelling, uh, how, how it's all dealt with, there's time to make that, that adjustment. So that, that that's one that's uh, again relatively low down our our um, anxiety list. No, and 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 I, and I kind of get that, and and that 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 sort of period of bed-in, which, which gives us till January 2022, is what we're saying. And that's yeah. for human medicines as well. Yes. How does that work then with the COVID vaccine? What happens if we purchase a COVID vaccine, say the Oxford vaccine, which is cleared uh, by the UK Standards Agency, uh, and we start applying that in here in Northern Ireland, and the programme is such that it runs on beyond that one year? Uh, are we saying that come... Uh, January 2022, if that programme hasn't finished and the EU have not agreed the Oxford vaccine, that it would have to stop being used? Uh, I, I would doubt that that would conceivably arise because the, 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 uh, there'd be such a, a, a need for the regulatory regimes to stay in step. So I think the, the expectation on that one for me would be that, that, that regulatory approval in both the UK and the EU, we've, we've seen that on the uh, Pfizer vaccine, uh, those have not moved at, at, at identical pace, but but you know they're moving broadly in, in the same time frame. 
so I, I, I just don't think that issue would arise again unless, unless colleagues have anything to add on that. I don't, I don't think there's, there's any risk on that at all. And, 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 and that's fine. I, I mean, and I take that um, uh, and, and, and really just trying to tie that tie that down. You know, if that would be that cliff edge. But but I absolutely get that that we have to abide by the the, the EU rules come well come January 2022. Then and, and case, that's yes. for human human medicines as well as. Uh, veterinary products. Can I then just take you on to, to another piece of it in the weeds? This business of movement of parcels into Northern Ireland, you know, it, there's nothing there. What, what, what's, what's the outcome of this? A pragmatic approach? What pragmatic approach are we talking about? Well, that's, that's still to be resolved. So that's one of the things that was, I think, in the announcement last week, last Thursday night, was still to be resolved. I think, uh, again, there's great sensitivity in terms of, of market competition. Uh, and so there's a need to just look at uh, something which is, is uh, as fair as possible from all perspectives uh, in terms of, of the way in which uh, goods move between ultimately suppliers and, and consumers. Uh, you know, the parcel, uh, the, the way the market works, that's been a, a very expanding aspect of business. It's huge. Uh, and it's, it's, it's important that, that, that uh, as well as seeking something which is uh, facilitates access that is, is easy and, and straightforward for consumers and avoids excess cost as well you don't have something that distorts competition uh, and that, that's all those considerations come into it as to what would be the best landing point uh, and how that would work out but, it, but that's one that, as a matter, matter of fact isn't settled and there's this further further resolution required on that again but to Tom and Lindsay, if they want to add, add anything on that, but that's that's one that isn't isn't yet resolved. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add to that, Andreas, another one of those areas where the devil's in the detail, uh, in a sense. Uh, my understanding is HMRC are engaging with parcel companies around developing guidance, and it goes back to, I think, a point Andrew made before. The intention is very much to, to streamline it as much as possible and minimise the impact on consumers, but as yet we haven't seen the guidance or the outworking of those discussions. And, and what's the concern? I mean, I, I guess the concern is that goods in GB could be parcel post to Northern Ireland um, with contents of it which which don't comply with the EU regulations. Is is that is that the is that the basic terms the issue? So I mean, this is probably we're not in the agri-food space. There'll be you know, not not that much yeah. by way of, of that category of good coming in. It's more. This is more than a distortion of of, of trade. If there were incentives to uh, if, if, if sorry if the main, if the main regulatory regime has got this right a, a proper balance in, in relation especially to the at-risk goods issue if that's solved at the highest level the at-risk goods issue means that a large a very very large proportion of goods coming in by freight uh, are exempt from tariffs so therefore you expect then the vast majority of, of what comes by partial post again even in even in a no no deal scenario, should be straightforward. But if if I think the, the, the there's a, a genuine point to be considered here, which is that uh, if you create an additional incentive to do things by that route as opposed to a, the, the the other routes, if that if it becomes a, a distortion of competition, then that that's uh, questionable. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that that leads you to any particular. Obvious conclusion. It may be that the simplest conclusion is, is, is to avoid any any additional bureaucracy, but it's not a straightforward one because 
you know, the volume uh, of what's going on in the in that part of the market is now so significant. You know? So I think it's just one, just to, to, to pretty. Uh, it, 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 this is, as you say, uh, in the weeds. This is, but, but actually, a lot of detail is there. You know, there's there, there's money to be made in the weeds. Is, is a very one way to put it. You know, and it certainly is. But am I right in then saying, but but this particular issue about. And, and, and the reality is it, it affects constituents, it affects yes, yes, oh, yes. people who we represent and, 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 and that's why it's important to talk about it. But, but, but this issue of, of parcels, there's, there's, no, there's no delay in this. I mean, the 1st of January, this needs to be resolved. Yeah, is, well, that, is that what we're saying? Right, needs to be clear. What's the worst right. case scenario then come the 1st of January if it's not resolved? So the, the d- default, I assume, I assume the default would be yeah. an obligation for there to be a customs declaration on every parcel. I, I think that would, that would be the default. And, and you know, I've I, I bought a few things from Amazon that have, have come from maybe Switzerland or somewhere. And, yeah. and what you get is a parcel, and as part of the label is the customs declaration. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's not so for for non-EU goods coming in already. This is it's relatively straightforward. The question will be, does it add a cost which then distorts the market? So that's the, that needs explored, but very quickly. Yeah, and 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 you're absolutely right. That declaration that we're talking about is it's just something as part of the parceling. It, you know, it's it's not a it's not a huge ask, but it becomes a huge issue when people don't know about it come January That's and right. they're sending which don't have it, and and parcels are suddenly not making it between uh, A and B, not making it between GB and and, and Northern Ireland. So uh, this is again where there'll be just a lot. Of, this is only one of many areas. Of course, where it is, yeah, there'll yeah. be a lot of adjustment to be done, and you know, I think the one thing for certain is that lots of things won't be quite ready, some things won't be that ready at all, and so January there'll be a lot of adjustment to be made, but that's, that's just how it works out, and uh, I think the, the, the important thing is, is to keep things as steady and normal as possible. Uh, for, uh, I, think that's, I think all the authorities would, would recognise that's, that's the right thing to do, uh, to keep, keep things flowing, keep things steady, keep pe- people trading and, and, and proceeding, uh, and then making sure that uh, the obligations are, are clarified, and that enforcement is is uh, done in a sensible, graduating way. You know, not 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 coming down uh, in a very draconian way from first of January, but look, you know, recognising that that there's an, an awful lot of market adjustment required here, uh, and clearly uh, the, the thing that will need to be avoided would be um, material distortion, where where a I, you know, there's new either new new directions of trade, new ways of working which are not legitimate. Yeah. Uh, the, so getting clarity as to what what are the obligations, how people comply, making that as as clear and straightforward as possible, is part of our task. But a, a lot of that was is with DFE. A lot of it is actually with HMRC. I mean, this the point, the parcel point actually is a is a, a UK government responsibility. Yeah, no, and, and, and you're right, Andrew. And, and I guess the, 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 the and I'm deliberately in the weeds, by the way, because and, mm. and I'm deliberately in the weeds because in the weeds is what affects mm. our constituents oh, yeah, the most. Absolutely, absolutely uh, right. and, uh, and and uh, that real concern is that um, sitting now on the what is it, 16th, 17th of December, that that you know if, if we're talking the first of January, that just the, the people have, won't know. They just will not know come the first of January. What they do in regards to sending sending parcels—that's that's where it affects people at the the, the the lowest level, and that's that's why I mentioned it. But 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 thank you. I mean, it, it just shows that there is a that there is an issue. And can I raise this last last issue? And again, it's just getting an understanding as, as best I can, but because it's being talked about and it's asked about. We understand the principle 
uh, of supervision at our ports, EU supervision at our ports. We understand that. Yep. We understand it's been put in there. Um, there will be lots of people who are not happy about that. I wouldn't be particularly happy about it, but it's there. Uh, what we do, we, we need to make it. We need to make these things work because we need to make Northern Ireland work. Uh, that's that's a fact, and I want to make Northern Ireland work uh, within the United Kingdom. What do we know about that, um, Andrew? I mean, I'm being told that, that that these EU officials are going to be on a rotation basis. Do we know? Do, is there any detail on that, or how it's intending to work? Sure. And, and 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 if I can, please, because I'm I'm not trying to get into a contentious issue, but, but there. Are, but the sensitivities of Northern Ireland, there is a contentious issue, and that contentious issue is, and you'll know that, is if, if, if you know, UK officials are being monitored by Irish officials in Northern Ireland about... That's where the contention comes in. I'm not trying to create a contentious, but people will want to know that. <coughs> do we know any details about if it's going to be a rotation, how they're going to do it, or whether they're looking at those sensitivities just to, to try is, to ease people's minds? No, there, there is genuine awareness of the sensitivity of this issue. I think in the discussions between... Vice President Sefcovic and the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. This was part of what they would have explored, and uh, you know that this is there's awareness of, of, of um, what it looks like and what it feels like. Uh, and the the uh, part of the answer to that is a low key presence. Uh, I, I don't know the detail of how the how the staff will be deployed. And again, you, you, there'll be a balance to be found between continuity, so that people know are familiar with what's happening and, and sensitive to. to Things and, and then fresh eyes. There's always that balance in a lot of administrative yeah. contexts is to have, to have a, a proper balance there. But uh, and they'll have access to databases. So not not everything needs to be done physically as, as a presence. Uh, there's presence, but there's also access to, to information so that there can be clarity as to what's going on. Uh, from from uh, and it, it's I think it's definitely important to say this. This is on behalf of of. Um, the EU as a whole, not, of, not of any individual member state, whatever may be convenient uh, within the island in that sense. But no, this, this is, and this is uh, clearly what was agreed fundamentally. There was a clear agreement in, in Article 12 of the, of the protocol that this, this would, be, would be happening. Uh, and it's been taking a bit of work to get a right and an acceptable resolution of that. But uh, from the point of view of the other member states, what they will say is this is the only place around the entire periphery of the EU where uh, the, the entry into the territory, and because there's nothing at the land border, anything coming in here has automatic, free, you know, un totally unrestricted access across the island. Therefore, uh, you know, to, to entirely trust a third country, as in the UK, to look after all of that, uh, is, is a very big ask from their point of view. So that there are, that, you know, when we say and we, we have said in, in the discussions with the Commission, be aware of these sensitivities. And uh, Michael Gove and his officials have said how sensitive this is in negotiating what is now resolved as the way forward. That, and they, what they say back is, well, well, we've got sensitivities as well. This, this is uh, this is access to to the market. Uh, if you look at either on food as an issue. And all that's sensitive about food safety, and never, and then issues around distortion of the single market. You know, that's that's incredibly sensitive from um, the point of view of uh, Italians or Poles or any of the member states. So they, they will all say that and say to the Commission: make sure you look after, uh, make sure you don't give away, uh, such that uh, you know we put risk 
into the into access to our market. So sensitivity on both sides. Took, well, that's that's why it took time uh, to resolve. But what has emerged was announced last Thursday again as a decision uh, for formal adoption at the joint committee. That that's published in there as to how that how that will work. I think, and you know, and I would I would echo that. I mean, I guess. I guess it's that. I mean, I don't apologise for being biased here, and I'm concerned about Northern Ireland and the perception of Northern Ireland and how Northern Ireland is going to work. And I said this already. Uh, it, it is, and we need to make Northern Ireland work within the United Kingdom. So that's why I'm biased on this. So, but that light touch is really important that we point out that light touch, and people can disagree with that. But, mm. but just at the very point of of EU, EU officials walking about with high vis vests with the EU logo on it will be too much for some people. You know, there's ways of them making sure they can do their job and do it right and do it well. Um, but but having that that light touch. Listen, I've I've kept you long enough. So I'm sorry no, for getting into the weeds, but no, thank that's, you. That's where that's where that's where the stuff is. The work is there. Yes, that's right. It's there and my garden are the two places that you'll find weeds. But that's another <laughs> conversation. Okay, Martina. Um, Andrew, uh, thank you for for that overview. And you know, just listening to Doug, I can imagine what it must be like for own constituents uh, and yourself, because I know you voted uh, you wanted to remain. Um, I, I don't accept sometimes when we throw around language, we are where we are, because we didn't have to be here. And officials in front of us today um, in the Infrastructure Committee were saying for them the 1st of January is the start of the Brexit problems for our departments. Because, because it is a mess, and unfortunately, as a consequence of it, there's going to be a border somewhere. And anyone who hadn't thought that through, hadn't really interrogated those that were advocating to, uh, to leave. And I know we fought very hard to ensure it wasn't going to be on the island of Ireland, but there was already a border in the Sea, but it is going to be a hardening of that. So, Listening to what you said and reading the information that was presented today, the three months for SPS, the six months delay for chilled meat, and the 12 months for medicine that Doug has asked about, those are only periods of time for transition, almost an extension of the transition, even though this is, there wouldn't be an extension of the transition. but. There is an extension of the transition for these particular uh, subject matters. Um, after the three, six, twelve-month period, what happens? So uh, it, it, each of those is different in in fact in terms of how it plays out. So on um, the three-month grace period or. Pathway to compliance is a, a phrase that's been used, and I think it's a good phrase. It's it's uh, recognising that uh, this is a very large change with the significant volume of export health certificates that are required on supermarket consignments. Uh, so for that category of, of goods, which are you know so fundamental to the flow of, of, of retail uh, product for here, um, that that's an enormous number, um, and for the supermarkets. The authorising authorities who have to sign off on these certificates, uh, and then the processors, uh, as uh, in DERA, uh, as they operate the controls 
uh, on SPS goods. That that that's take it takes time to adjust, and that that's three months is quite a short period and very challenging. But uh, on the other hand, uh, this has been a known issue. I mean, the number of times I'm sure you've had business representatives uh, at this committee or other committees uh, from the springtime, if not before, saying. We, we see this, this this requirement. It's a it's a both a cost and a major inhibition to trade. So so the the export health certificate on what was known and well understood, and it's, it's it's taken time to adjust. But after that's over, then there there needs to be compliance. Uh, in the words that that uh, all the relevant goods arriving at the ports of departure on the other side of the water need to be arriving with the right certification. As April begins, so that that's April into April. That's when it starts to need to be um, a necessary requirement. And I think this is where uh, the, the form that takes um, is a um, um, statement by a statement of how by, by the UK of how this will operate, uh, and the fact that then the. Um, the Commission uh, noted that, that that's what the UK was saying it would do and, and recognising that as a uh, implicitly acceptable uh, way forward towards compliance. If we come to the issue of, of meat products... That would be compliance with the EU. Yeah, then, then, well, the, the, the obligation is, is to... Uh, the, the bit that to be complied with is for, their, for everything arriving to have an export health certificate in compliance with the ACI. So that, that's, that's what Just needs to... Up that's been known... Point. From, from the signing of the protocol, it was known yeah, that that was no, there. No, no, I, I look, I accept that, but I'm just picking up on something that Doug has said because it's about people out there understanding what's going to happen. Uh, so in three months' time, uh, regardless of where you were uh, in terms of Brexit, but in three months' time, people need to know that there will be regulatory divergence with Britain in terms of some of this, some of these matters. So if it's regulated compliance with the EU key, then it's regulatory compliance with the EU. The 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 um, really this, this apply, the, the, the requirement the requirement for a certificate applies irrespective of whether or not the UK exercises its its rights to diverge. To divergence is is, is a matter for uh, for the GB authorities mm -hmm. in the future, and the extent to which they exercise that is entirely. For them. Well, well, we know that, from the papers. Will, we know that will from the papers they intend to do that. Well, it'll, it'll depend on what they sign up to in the in the FTA. So, if, the, if there's an, it's still possible that there could be an agreement in the main negotiations where, effectively, uh, the degree of divergence on SPS relevant <coughs> products might be relatively small. And certainly, the, the the UK government has always declared its commitment to maintaining high standards. Uh, of course, then you get into all the debate about what they want to do in terms of the other trade agreements they would make with uh, with third countries, with the rest of the world, uh, US, etc. You know, all of that debate comes in. But uh, the, the part of the point here is that um, goods coming here, uh, will, will the, the certification obligation will apply whether or not there's divergence. Uh, if, there's, if there is divergence, then what the certificate would have to confirm is that the products entering here would be compliant with the EU regulatory regime? So that, that's that's the that would be an extra layer of obligation if uh, GB diverges, but that that's not 
that's, that may not happen at all, conceivably, under an FTA, or it may happen slowly, or it may happen radically. That, that's uh, no, not known. What is certain is that uh, even if there's no divergence, the certificates are required on, on that range of products. Is it okay to move on to the other two that you mentioned then? So on the, on the um, meat products, uh, again, this is, this is a unilateral declaration by the United Kingdom uh, declaring what they will do, and that includes elements of um, providing, again, a, a new form of certification for these products. So that, that part of the reason, because they're so-called prohibited and restricted, they're, so the, uh, the, the point about these, this range of products is that there's a prohibition on them entering the EU, and that's, that's to protect uh, the market against uh, uh, you know, unsatisfactory product coming in from third countries, and, and this is a, a sensitive issue for um, other other member states looking at their neighbours, and so this is not one that they uh, were, were at all comfortable with, given the potential risk of precedent. Uh, so that that's why this was quite difficult to negotiate. So uh, I think you said earlier that, that we, we should have been here earlier. I think the, the fact is that getting some of these things was genuinely difficult to negotiate because they are, I'll go back to the point that there were great sensitivities for the member states. So securing these derogations, securing these, these adapt, 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 adapting periods are pretty important, but not, not easy to secure. So six months, after six months, um, the documents are silent as to what happens after that. So what it doesn't say, this may be extended. It doesn't say it can't be extended. So we the, might the, end the, up in practice have an extension, uh, and a further extension um, for six months. The, the, the documents don't say anything either way. Mm -hmm. I, I think from what I know about the process, that would not be straightforward. Mm -hmm. I think Secretary State Lewis has, has indicated the possibility of extension, uh, and, and if that's negotiable, and make it makes things possible for longer term. That's that's to be desired because it makes life easier. But this is not just an issue for us. This is an issue uh, between um, GB producers and the EU market. If they want to sell sausages or chilled mince um, from England or Wales into France or Germany, then at the moment that's prohibited, and, and they don't have a six-month grace period. We have because it's part of one country, or it's moving between GB and NI. Uh, and that, that's, that's the way, way it looks. So uh, that, that's a very sensitive, so very difficult to, issue, but, but uh, the, the document is silent. The three months, the six months, and 12 months, then that's applicable only here. So whilst we had been arguing for an extension, we had actually been arguing for an extension for everywhere, but almost nearly like the protocol, we got exceptional circumstances here. So the, the six months is only applicable here. Yes, this is, this is something that applies as part of the agreement on the protocol. Yep, that's okay. And then the 12 months for medicine. Uh, again, uh, that's, uh, after that time, then the um, EU regulatory regime applies. Yep, but, right. but there's time to adjust to that, and, and that, that affects how, how, how medicines move by, in terms of, of the, the way the market operates. Can I ask you, I just wrote down when you were speaking, because you talked about the movements of goods in both directions, but uh, my understanding of the protocol is only movement on, on federal access in one direction. 
But That's correct, is, yes. the, is, it, is the other direction that we're talking about, because I listened to a member on the floor on Monday or Tuesday claim there was unfettered access in both directions, which I just want, I think, for all other members who mightn't get into the weeds like this committee has to, uh, and understand that. So it's good for us to share with our colleagues as well. So the trader assistance scheme and the movement assistance scheme that some it's people are saying is quite complicated, sounding, and, and they're feared that they may not get the clarity on it. That's what's going to assist maybe with some yes. kind of movement from, uh, from Britain into here. But the unfettered access that we have clearly is from here into the biggest market, into the EU market. The, the, well, no, uh, unfettered access, the, the phrase is normally used mainly, or it's, well, actually in relation to the protocol itself and indeed even in New Decade New Approach, the actual term unfettered access was only ever used in relation to Northern Ireland <coughs> DB, and that, and that was then, there were yeah, clauses, yes, here to GB. It's actually not, not even necessary to say it in relation to the land border because uh, the protocol guarantees no inhibition. And one thing that I, I'm, I've heard a bit of anxiety, you know, people asking, well, what do I need to do to move goods? into the south and the answer is nothing because nothing that, that, that it's just totally so it's, uh, you, you don't even we don't even talk about unfettered access because it's, no, it's so obviously unfettered if you like that's the, in a way the whole point of the protocol the uh, and, and, and that, that, that's actually of course a very significant market advantage and, mm -hmm. and any time i talk to edinburgh they're they're saying well you know we'd like that too uh, uh, you know and, and many traders in, across the water would like to have that access to EU markets. In a way, it's what the trade negotiations are all about, is, is the conditions for GB to have access to sell into the single market and, and how to get a zero quota zero tariff trade deal. And they're, they're having to go through a, an intense year of negotiations, but we've got it in the protocol, guaranteed and secure. So that's, that's definite. Uh, then what is also then occasionally uh, said is a reference to unfettered access in the from GB to NI, and that was was never used. That that's never used in the protocol. Wasn't ever used in New Decade New Approach. Uh, and you, again, uh, it's not a matter for me to comment on. It's just a matter of fact that there are, uh, and we've always known that there would be a, a, a degree of checking. Uh, uh, the more recent presentations from, uh, as in say the command paper in May or the further further papers recently, is 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 emphasizing that. Some of that is uh, there. There were uh, some elements of checking, even in the status quo, even before EU membership, uh, because of the nat nature of, of the island as a, uh, as a single epidemiological, epidemiological unit. Uh, that's that stands. Um, there's certainly more checks than than before, uh, and hence the, the the sensitivity is known and understood. Uh, it's something we talk about when we're talking to co colleagues in Brussels. You know, recognise that this is politically sensitive, but this is the solution that was agreed, and making it work, making it work pragmatically, in as low key a way as, as is possible, uh, minimising the costs. So the, the trader support service, uh, which is dealing with customs, and the movement, the MAS, as announced last week, which helps with SPS, those are both uh, facilitating and, and, and taking cost away from um, the traders. And helping things move, uh, so uh, it's not it's not unfettered access because uh, the uh, there is a, a need to protect the single market. Uh, that's the EU's position, but it's as it's as smooth as can be in the circumstances.
Yeah. <coughs> I think that's an important. Sorry, it's important to emphasise that point, Martina. It's as Andrew said. You know, it's about minimising the impact and not making it streamlining it as far as possible, uh, but recognising there is a need for checks. Yeah, and that's what we all want. Yeah. And that's what business and everyone wants. The 70 million share that you spoke about that was mm. mentioned this morning, that would be lost because that doesn't commute with what we were told last week. Um, the, the officials that were, that were here from the finance committee or the finance department and, uh, and maybe Lindsay, you may know a little bit more on this because they have mentioned there's 750 million of structural funds uh, that comes in here. Uh, now, maybe Minister Dodd says meant 70 a year or 70 every couple of months. I don't know what she was referring to when she said 70 because it wouldn't be 70 in a tranche of 3.6 billion, given that farmers have already been told there's going to be 34 million of a loss uh, over a three year period. So, once they had been guaranteed, the money was going to stay the same. They have been told now that's no longer the case. And then the, the finance uh, department officials told us there's 750 million from structural funds that the British government has actually set aside 220 million. But that's for England, Scotland, Wales, and here. Um, so it's a lot more than the 70 million, I suspect, from the calculation that we got from last week and from the information that we have so far. Uh, limited as it is, but it seems to be more than that, Lindsay? Um, well, I'm trying to do some quick maths while you're asking me that question. Um, but yes, I think 750 million is over seven years. Um, so we can confirm that. A year? I'm not, I don't have that figure from. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I don't have that figure from um, the Department of Economy. They might be just focusing on um, particularly things that would come under um, the Economy Minister's portfolio. We have to check that with them. Um, but, but I think what is correct, and again, Department of Finance will have these figures more to hand than, than we do today, I'm afraid, because we've focused more on the um, judgment decisions. But um, the, the it is the case that the, you know there's there's some figures that are known, obviously we can talk about the figures that we know that we've historically received and we're receiving within this financial period from the EU. There are some figures out there from the UK government regarding the shared prosperity fund. We also have some figures out there regarding Peace Plus. Um, so we really have to look at all of those and see where the, the, 70, um, the 70 million figure comes from. But I mean, sort of a very rough ready reckoner, I suppose, is that yes, if you take the 750, uh, million and sort of divide it by seven and maybe take off what they think you might get from the share of prosperity fund they might bring you roughly to that figure but I, I honestly I honestly would have to check. But but, but I think it's not it, we shouldn't in any way under underplay the challenges of not having um you know of trying to sort of navigate how the, that funding would be replaced. I think that's something our our annual colleagues in finance are very much focused on. But Lindsay, that 750 million is only structural funds. I mean, we know there are dedicated funds coming to the north, and there's 3.6 billion. So the 70 million, whether that's from only the Department of the Economy, <coughs> it would be helpful for this office, for, for, for this committee, if we had a handle on exactly what the figure, sure. for instance, what are we, what 
in a projected way. Yep. We're only 15 days away. This Aye. is our last committee. By the time we come back, it'll be over. Now, hopefully, there may be a future relationship and whatever way that works out. But we know we're not going to get access to the EU in the same way as the funding streams. There's part of us will be in the EU, the custom union, but part of us in the single market. It's a hokey-pokey arrangement. But we also know when it comes to funding that whether it's farmers or groups and organisations that has got European Social Fund, European Regional Development Fund, all of the funds, we know there's going to be a loss. So it would be good for us maybe when we come back in sure. January to have that, uh, have that unpacked first. So we, need to unpack, we need to unpack the structural funds, uh, there, there's then <coughs> agriculture funding, which, which you know, what happens post-CAP. Uh, Other two rural development funds. Well, yes, absolutely, and then the, as you say, the the um, competitive funds, uh, the, the EU programmes that that, yeah. that are still there's still a bit of negotiation on those. I, I suspect that uh, I know that conversations with economy DFE officials have been focusing on their concerns over loss in relation to uh, research funding, which is very very important to invest in Northern Ireland and uh, European Social Fund. Uh, with, you know, they, they, uh, they were leading on, on, on both of those uh, in my time in the, in the Department of the Economy. And if, if those are not replaced properly, then there are, are some very serious issues which I think play into the work that is going on at the present time in Department of Finance on, on, the, on the main budget. So some really central issues there. I think that's really important stuff. Well, but we, we, need get, we need to get you the, the breakdown. The, um, the Minister for the Economy, when she was a Brexit here in Europe, because she should have known what the implications of this was going to have. It started on Monday at zero and at 70 million today, 70 so it could be, we, by the time we get to the 1st of January, it could considerably right have figure. increased in, on that figure. Thank you, um, Andrew, for that. I'm going to progress on. I'm just conscious we're about 25 minutes over, over time at this stage, and we have another presentation coming in. Uh, that's not directed at you, Trevor, but no, you're no, next no. in, in no, asking no, the no, questions. No. But maybe if the panel could, could try and right. condense the replies as well, because we do have people waiting uh, to join in. At this stage, I have no indications from anybody on uh, on, on the um, Starleaf has, has not put their hand up, so I'm presuming that Trevor, you'll be our last question if you want. I can take the ball their time as well. Then, yeah. <laughs> no, I won't take long. I never do. Um, Andrew, we seem to have gone from pessimism to optimism quite seamlessly in the last week or two, and that's good. I mean, I listened to Mr. Gove the other day making a statement about the protocol and the clarifications, and that's, that's excellent as far as it goes. You know, the only words that concern me any, over and over again was in principle. Uh, it, could this still be derailed by a no-deal outcome, or is this, this part of it, this Northern Ireland Protocol now set in stone that we can rely on most of what was in his statement? Well, the original protocol, that, that was ratified as part of the withdrawal agreement so in that sense it was firm from the from from january uh, the announcement last week uh, assuming confirmation is still subject to a formal sign-off in the joint committee uh, so what was published last thursday night were uh, they were all described as draft decisions uh, but my understanding is they are holding firm solidly so, so uh, I'm not aware of a word having changed from what was published on Thursday night in terms of what will go forward for ratification and should be approved very soon now. And then, then those things would be, uh, ha they've been through all the approval processes on the European side, but they've been through uh, uh, what's called an A point at a council meeting. So that they've been formally, they, they, I think maybe that's tomorrow morning, uh, we're expecting them to be formally approved and therefore they become operable. 
whatever happens on the main trade negotiations. Uh, and in fact, the the decision in relation to address goods uh, was very much related to that. The, the, uh, if if there is an FTA, then the question of tariffs in relation to goods which are so-called at risk of entering the single market that is goes away. It doesn't doesn't. There's still there's still customs complications even if there is an, an FTA. But uh, the issue of tariffs would would be removed. So in fact. The re part of the reason for negotiating that, part of that reason that was an ob obligation under the Joint Committee was in case there wasn't a deal. So th these bits are then secure. They're, 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 there is no mechanism by which they can be overturned. Uh, and the UK's withdrawal of the relevant clauses in the Internal Market Bill and, and decision not to proceed with the clause in the Taxation Bill, you know, there's no, there's that, that domestic law tension is gone. So that, 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 that sense, I should have just said yes, Chairman. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're learning. <laughs> right. Slow uh, uh, committee work for slow learners. So, uh, <laughs> Don't you call me a slow learner? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I accept all that. I'm glad you explained it because that's what I wanted you to do. The um, the question of, of supermarkets has come up once or twice in the last week uh, after the. Uh, Clarification, because the the wording of the Mr. Goh's statement and the written stuff in front of us here. Yes. Uh, and the, it, it refers to. Um, I think it's okay actually, but it refers to authorised traders like supermarkets, and that that raised a hair or two because smaller retailers, food retailers in Northern Ireland, thought they might be in a, in a different category. But can I take it that? You know, Tesco and so on, they, they bring in their stuff themselves, their own, their own supply chains, all the big supermarkets do. The smaller ones would use wholesalers over here, who, uh, like Musgraves, I suppose, who uh, import the stuff and then distribute it. So can we take it that the same rules would apply to wholesale food uh, importers here as would apply to retail food importers? So uh, the the document says that this is um, restricted to food suppliers, suppliers which are approved by the UK authorities after they demonstrate a range of trust criteria. That's, I'm just reading, reading. That's what the words say, and there are then specified steps in relation to labelling. So a reference to mustn't be marketed outside Northern Ireland, uh, solely for sale to end, end consumers. So the, the question is getting onto that list. Getting uh, the those who are moving the goods uh, as as, as for that to be uh, interpreted in a in a sensible pragmatic way, yeah. and that's, that's that's current work in progress to make mm -hmm. sure that that is as as uh, facilitates the flow of food as much as possible. So so I think that's uh, we have to be um, just. Uh, hope, hopeful that that will maximise the supply and, and uh, make sure that the, the flow of goods is as, as normal as possible. Uh, it, it, the, the, um, but the words are there in the document that was published on Thursday night, the one called, let me get the, the title of this, this is the, the draft unilateral declarations uh, on official certifications. So that, that's the, uh, the, the important categorisation there. Okay. Um, so um, it refers to um, an, uh, 
a list a list to be approved by the UK authorities. So that, that should be as, as, as positive as, as possible. And the last we point, uh, um, Doug mentioned the sort of parcel post situation in Amazon. Uh, I, I, like yourself, would, would get um, plant products from Amazon. A lot of people do. Mm. And from Sutton's and whoever, you know, garden centres across the water. Uh, and I presume at the moment there, there must be a level of certification required because of the, the risks involved, uh, even if they're coming through the post rather than through the docks. Um, is, is that, uh, can I take it down there shouldn't be any real change in, in terms of the supply of, of live plants or bulbs or whatever, seeds, into Northern Ireland coming from the UK? Would it still be much the same arrangement? Um, there's a, there's a, I think we talked on a previous session about the outstanding issue of the need for confirmation of equivalence, uh, so for uh, the designation of the UK as a, a so-called equivalent third country, so that, that there's, 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 there are legal steps still to be taken, but that should take care of some of the points you make, uh, at least in relation to uh, to seed. Uh, I, I think there's, there's I just would, would hesitate unless Tom or Lindsay have a clearer point to make about plants as such, I think that that's still that might still be in the work in progress. I think that's category. that's still a work in progress, unless Lindsay's able to add anything but to Lindsay's that. But I think not, it's the same situation that's coming down to the third country. Yeah, I would, I would rather buy them locally anyway. To tell you the truth, about 15 strawberry plants from Amazon the other day, and 13 of them died. Well, but anyway, that's that's by the way. Alternative suppliers are available. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but between you, your plants and and Doug's weeds, and you're getting things from Switzerland. We're doing quite well today with our our, our parcels. Yeah, local. shop local. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the global village. That's the end of my uh, questions, Chair. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. Five minutes. Thank you. Yep. And <laughs> Pat Sheehan is next. Then we have Pat there. Do you want to ask your question? Yes, Chair, and uh, thanks. I must quite a bit this afternoon uh, because of technical difficulties. Not sure what the problem is, but in any event. Just in regard to the agreement around uh, EU customs personnel, could you give us some detail around that agreement, Andrew, please? So, uh, the detail on that one is also on the um, on the UK government website, the draft decision in relation to um, Article 12.2 of the protocol, and that sets out the nature of the way in which uh, uh, EU representatives would uh, exercise their role of, of supervision. Uh, it's a low-key presence. It's uh, you know a, a couple of dozen at most individuals who would be working with. So that they, they will never be. Carrying out the, the checking responsibility, their their role is to supervise, uh, especially Dara. It'll be Dara staff who'll be doing the um, main responsibility there to make sure that the uh, regulatory regime is is followed, uh, and that needs to be then then monitored to ensure that it's being done in a satisfactory manner. And that's uh, I think if, if, sorry if you missed this part, but I was saying earlier that that there is a sensitivity from the member states to ensure that this is done well. To protect their interests, uh, but what has been established is something which also has regard to the great sensitivity of having um, EU staff operating uh, after after uh, we've left the EU as such. So that, that's there's a working solution. The, the detail is available on the 
um, on the website is the draft decision, and that, that decision is likely to be adopted formally very soon. Is that? Um, I can come back. Where, where, where will those stuff be based on, really, when they're not uh, on duty? Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know. I don't think there is an answer to that. I think that they'll, given that they'll need to operate at the various points of entry, as in uh, Larne, Belfast, One Point, etc., that they'll need to be able to be able to function on a, in a normal working way when when um, um, consignment when relevant consignments are arriving. So, any time boats are arriving, they need, they, need, they need to be able to be, be there. Which then takes you into the, the need for them to be facilitated. But they'll, they'll, there isn't what there isn't going to be is a an office with a flag and a, and a you know a, a prominent commission presence. Uh, I think the rest would be just pragmatic operational ways of working. Uh, you know, a, a, a desks to sit at, space to work, uh, and and ways to engage and meet with uh, the uh, the DERA staff. But it, it's it's as as low key as, as can be can be imagined, really. Again, I think Lindsay would or Tom would add. No, I mean I think again, Andrew, that's a key point. Um, you know, it's as low key as it can be, whilst ensuring staff have access to facilities to undertake the job. Okay, thanks for that. Thanks, Chuck. Okay, thank you, Pat. Um, okay. Thank you very much. That's the, the end of the, the of those indicating the questions. So I appreciate we've kept it a little longer than, than needs to be, but it is our last meeting of the year and you know obviously things will change somewhat whenever we speak again in uh, the new year. But thank you very much indeed and, and thank you very much. You all happy Christmas yeah. as happy well. Christmas all. Here thank you. As best we can. Thank you, Lindsay, as well. You've been with us quite a fair bit during the year. Thank you. All the best. <laughs> yeah, done well, done well. These folks will take just two minutes uh, while we prepare uh, the tables for our next guest. So we'll just take a break for two minutes. Okay. Um, okay, folks, we'll start back again. Uh, we're moving on to item five, Brexit, Article two of the Protocol on Ireland, Northern Ireland, the Joint Committee of Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission and the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland. Members on page 25 to 74 of the meeting pack are the relevant papers and representatives are in attendance today to talk about Article 2 of the Protocol uh, and I take the opportunity to welcome in the room with us here Les Allenby, the Chief Commissioner of Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and Geraldine McGahey, the uh, Chief Commissioner of the Equality Commission for Northern Ireland, and then uh, by Starleaf, along with members, is Sinead Gibney, who is the Chief Commissioner for the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Just as ever, the um, uh, session today is being recorded by Hansard, and a transcript will be published on the committee webpage. Um, maybe we'll pass over to yourselves. I know it's not been an, a long time from we last saw you, but in Brexit, a day can be a long time. So um, maybe if you want to update us just on how things have progressed from your perspective, and then we can maybe just get a bit of a, a chat after that. Okay, certainly. Okay, um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, hello, members. Good to see you all again. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to give you a bit of an update on the work that we've been doing since we last spoke to you in September. Um, I'm going to say a few words um, talking about the work that has been undertaken to, to raise awareness of the government's commitment 
about our work as a dedicated mechanism um, and about governance arrangements, and then Sinead's going to follow on uh, from me and give you some more detailed information on the all-island dimension, and then Les will follow her with some detailed information on the Internal Market Bill and other domestic rights developments, if that's okay. Sir? So, as you're aware, um, both the Equality Commission and the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission have key roles as part of the dedicated mechanism to oversee the implementation of the government's commitment to no dimin diminution of rights, safeguards and equality of opportunity, including to monitor, advise, report on and enforce the government's adherence to it. So we previously advised you that we had received additional resources uh, from government and that was to enable us to commence work over the past few months. Um, as a priority, we have been recruiting staff uh, to undertake the necessary work and I think at the last time I did advise you that we had appointed a director. Um, since then we have appointed some other staff, mainly in the areas of legal policy and promotional work uh, and there will be more appointments to follow in the very near future and I think Les has been working very hard as well to make sure that his appointments have been filled. We are continuing to look in detail at the scope of the Article 2.1 commitment not only the equality laws in place to implement the directives that are listed in Annex 1 of the protocol, but also at the provisions of the relevant part of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement and the extent to which they are underpinned by EU rights and uh, they that are enshrined in Northern Ireland law. So in terms of uh, awareness, uh, we have been raising awareness and undertaking engagements with officials from government departments and public bodies with academics and with equality and human rights organisations. Last week, for example, we held an online event as part of the Human Rights Consortium Festival on how equality and human rights will be protected in a post-Brexit Northern Ireland. Last month, uh, some of our representatives spoke at a joint Queen's University and Irish Centre of European Law on the Ireland-Northern Ireland Protocol, specifically on fundamental rights. Les and I also wrote an article for the Belfast Telegraph, which was published on the 5th of December, on the commitment and role of the commissions in overseeing its effective implementation by government. And we're planning general awareness raising activities in the coming months, including through public advertisements early in January. In terms of holding government to account, you will recall that when I was before you in September, I stated that at that time we did not foresee any significant issue regarding the Internal Market Bill, but should matters evolve then we would vigorously defend the, uh, the protocol and the Article 22 Part 1. As a consequence of government amendments, um, in our opinion government did exactly what we feared they might do and that they undermined um, the, the commitment of the Dedicate Mechanism Unit. So in line with our role of holding government to account, we raised concerns about the potential for the Internal Market Bill to impact on the implementation of Article 2.1 commitment, including that government amendments would disapply the scope of the European Convention on Human Rights in relation to the Bill. But we do welcome the fact that the government has indicated in a joint EU-UK statement issued on the 8th of December, following reaching an agreement in principle with the EU, in some areas covered by trade talks, that it will withdraw Part 5 of the Bill. We had also raised some concern about the potential impact of specific clauses, namely clauses 5, 6 and 11 of the Bill, 
We were concerned that these provisions would permit challenges to any future equality legislation introduced in Northern Ireland to keep pace with the EU equality laws and in line with the Article 2 commitment, and that this would undermine the commitment of the government. We raised these concerns with the Secretary of State and with various members of the Houses of Lords and House of Commons, and our concerns have been addressed in exchanges with the House of Lords on the 2nd of December at the third reading, when Lord Callaghan assured the House that the rights for individuals in Northern Ireland captured within the scope of the Article 2 commitment will continue to be protected going forward and will not be impacted by the workings of the Bill. And Les will talk to you in more detail about that. However, we will continue to proactively challenge any measure, including Westminster legislation, that could potentially undermine the commitments to equality and human rights set out in Article 2, Part 1 in delivering our monitoring role, and we will challenge those with vigour and with purpose. The third point I want to talk to you about is in relation to governance and the uh, developments that we have um, been involved in since we last spoke. We believe that uh, it's an essential component of the framework. Um, it concerns the all-island oversight arrangements, specifically that the commissions, together with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, will work together to oversee and report on rights and equality issues falling within the scope of the commitment that have an island of Ireland dimension. We see this as a critical part of the overall framework, particularly in light of the potential issues that may fall within the remit of the dedicated mechanism's work, including any cross-border issues that fall within the scope of Article 2 and have been discussing how best we might organise ourselves in three commissions to do this over the last number of months. Each of our commissions have agreed that our joint working on an all-island dimension of the Article 2 commitment will be overseen at a strategic level by our three boards, with regular reports going to them uh, on joint working. Any decisions that are required will be undertaken by the three boards individually in accordance with their own governance arrangements. Um, uh, presently, we have, as an Equality Commission, we have appointed our Commissioner who will participate in that. The, the working group will comprise of the ch three Chief Executives from the three Commissions, the three Chief Commissioners and relevant staff, plus one Commissioner from each. So um, the Chief Executive of the Equality Commission, Evelyn Collins, and I were delighted to meet with our counterparts um, with the Joint Committee that took place in November. And we, we plan to have further meetings now in January to look at how those issues will pan out. And as our work develops, we will plan to have quarterly meetings of the working group and potentially an annual meeting of the entire uh, three commissions. So that scheme will be launched in January as we plan to have a meeting of all three commissions, albeit online. So anyway, um, I think that's as far as I will go without trying to seal the thunder of Sinead and then Les. So if it's okay with you, Mr. Chairman, I'll hand over to Sinead. Yeah, of course, Sinead. Thanks very much, Chair, and uh, thanks to members for the opportunity again to address you. Uh, it's been a tumultuous time since our last meeting on the 14th of October, but a vitally important one in the framing of the post-Brexit relationship. And obviously within that, a new horizon for the protection of human rights and equality. 
In our last meeting, we focused significantly on the provisions of the Internal Market Bill, and I'm deeply relieved to see a resolution found to allay our stated concerns of the immediate impacts for the Northern Ireland Protocol, and to ensure that the Internal Market Bill doesn't have any negative ramifications for the work of the dedicated mechanism, and Les is going to speak to this in more detail. When the dust settles on 2020, we need to be in a position to ensure and reassure people that they can be aware of, secure information on, and if necessary, be able to vindicate their rights and to protect themselves against discrimination. As Geraldine has outlined, the dedicated mechanism is a key piece of institutional architecture to provide people with those reassurances in a changed geopolitical <coughs> environment. While the ECNI and the NIHRC are at the coalface of the dedicated mechanism in the context of the Article 2 commitment, both organisations and ourselves in IREC will continue to work together to provide oversight of and reporting on rights and equality issues falling within the scope of the commitment that have an island of Ireland dimension. Obviously, from an all-island perspective, such arrangements as set out in the UK Government Explainer document do not alter the constitutional status of our joint committee, but rather add significant weight to our work. The Joint Committee of the NHSC and IREC met last month with many new commissioners in attendance to discuss Brexit and the dedicated mechanism. We were also joined for part of that day by Geraldine and Evelyn from the ECNI. The three commissions are already, as you can see, working closely. As Geraldine has outlined, we have agreed our understanding and joint working arrangements of how we operationalise the dedicated mechanism, with of course the two Northern Ireland commissions being the primary actors. Consistent with current reporting and accountability structures, the NIHRC and the ECNI will provide regular reports to the UK Government and to the Northern Ireland Executive. Similarly, all three organisations will be able to report separately to the Governments of the UK and Ireland as appropriate on any issues with an island of Ireland rights and equality dimension that we have jointly addressed in the context of monitoring the no diminution commitment. Last week I met with Thomas Dillio Varadkar and as part of that meeting discussed with him the work done by the Joint Committee and the forthcoming work of the dedicated mechanism. Throughout this process, we have found very positive engagement with both ministers and senior officials, domestic and EU, which we aim to maintain. There are significant issues which, on an all-island basis, we need to be mindful of as the relationship evolves between the UK and the EU. Those frontier workers and migrant workers whose livelihoods are dependent on the free flow of people and clear and consistent employment practices, those accessing cross-border services, for example, childcare or healthcare. Those who may have their traditional ways of life challenged, including traveller and Roma communities. We will also maintain our wide horizon view on how the relationship develops in respect of the evolving dynamics of different governance and regulatory regimes. The protections outlined within the Protocol's first annex and the specific provisions of the EU laws which are listed there must be a key part of the dedicated mechanism's all-island work. As Les pointed out in our last meeting, everything else beyond Annex 1 is about having no regression and no diminution of rights. That will be a much longer process, looking over how this settlement will develop in respect of more broadly defined rights issues referenced in the equality, rights and safeguards sections of the Good Friday Agreement, such as the rights of women and girls, the rights of persons with disabilities, and access to equal, equal opportunities, among others. And of course it would be welcome to see the UK and Northern Ireland progressing positively to exceed EU provisions in this area and perhaps acting as an external driver of evolving rights and equalities for the EU and beyond. Thank you again, Assembly Members, for the opportunity to address you and I'm now going to pass over to Les. Thank you, Chair. Um, thanks, Sinead. Um, um, at our last session, um, 
Doug Beattie diligently pressed um, us about why we'd changed our minds over uh, the fact that the Internal Market Bill could potentially have uh, an impact on the work of the dedicated mechanism. And um, we were influenced, in effect, by the legal advice that suggested that it could. Um, and the two commissions then drafted an amendment to the bill to put beyond doubt that um, the Internal Market Bill could seep into uh, the work of the dedicated mechanism. Um, that amendment was tabled by Margaret Ritchie um, with the support of Peter Hain and uh, Alison Sooty, a, a Liberal Democrat peer, among others, uh, at the report stage of the uh, bill at the House of Lords. Um, Margaret was persuaded to withdraw the amendment following the kind of machinations that you'll be familiar with that parliaments engage in in terms of trying to uh, reach an agreement. And as part of that um, withdrawal, uh, it was agreed there'd be an exchange of correspondence placed in the public domain through the Westminster House Library, offering effectively the assurance that we were seeking. And in effect, what that letter confirms is that the relevant clauses that were mentioned by Geraldine earlier on non-discrimination apply to goods sold and the conduct of regulation of businesses that engage in the sale of goods. And though it did not completely rule out, for example, covering employment law, nonetheless, the letter makes clear that the purpose and the intention of the clauses, and it provides a significant reassurance that it will not affect implemented legislation applying to Northern Ireland under the protocol. Now, given that the initial response we had from uh, the two commissions' correspondence to government was essentially, there's nothing to see here. Um, that's a significant advance and a recognition that our worries had potential foundation and I hope have been fully allayed. Um, beyond that, I want to make a number of just brief observations, which you may want to pick up in questions. Um, first, the Ireland-Northern Ireland Protocol contains provisions which ensure Northern Ireland will keep pace with specific equal treatment and non-discrimination law, as well as the non-diminution of existing rights under the relevant section of the 1998 agreement. And it's worth just pointing out that that, that issue of keeping pace with the developments in EU law is clearly one of the issues that's vexing the UK government and the EU negotiating teams. Second point, I think, is that the gap between the protections in the rest of the UK and those in Northern Ireland through the non-diminution commitment will be determined to a significant extent by whether an agreement is reached, not just in terms of free trade, but in terms of the wider provisions that have been agreed, but are contingent on the, the rest of the free trade agreement. Third, um, the absence of an agreement has much wider ramifications than just for goods and services. Um, uh, it strikes me that um, we've focused on goods and services and the movement of, of each of those, but not on the movement of people. Um, and one illustration about the wider ramifications came last month when the chair of the National Police Chiefs Council, Martin Hewitt, wrote to the chair of the Westminster Home Affairs Committee on the ramifications, for example, of leaving without a deal. And what Martin Hewitt said in his correspondence is that in a non-negotiated outcome, 
the UK will lose access to EU law enforcement and national security tools and capabilities and will rely on contingencies. As an overarching principle, the loss will mean that even with contingencies in place, the fallback systems will be slower, provide less visibility of information and intelligence, and make joined up working with our European partners more cumbersome. And that mirrors the findings of the Joint Committee's commissioned research uh, recently, where senior PSNI officers referred to the alternatives to, for example, the European arrest warrant and various data sharing uh, provisions and other tools as suboptimal. And we also know now from last week, a National Audit Office report, that the Home Office's border management IT system is being further delayed until at least the financial year 2021-2022. So the competing tension of an open border alongside the UK government's new immigration laws and preventing trafficking and other security issues remains very much um, a live one. And then fourth and finally, by way of just kind of opening observations, the UK government has been very firm and clear in its aim of leaving behind the oversight and accountability mechanisms within the EU, particularly the Court of Justice of the European Union. And um, the UK will be leaving, um, in some cases immediately and in others over time, the Court of Justice, uh, and it will no longer play a role. Now, depending on whether you believe in happenstance or coincidence, in July this year, the government set up an independent review of administrative law to examine whether the judicial review strikes the right balance between enabling citizens to challenge the lawfulness of government action and allowing government and local authorities to carry out their business. And then again, uh, in December, just recently, the government announced the second independent review of the Human Rights Act, um, and this time to look at the relationship between domestic courts and the Strasbourg courts, and again, whether the right balance is struck between courts, government, and parliaments. Now, that review will not consider the scope of substantive rights covered within the Human Rights Act. Nonetheless, the rights uh, are only as good as their remedies, and so we're looking at the machinery um, and remedies amongst other issues. So I think those reviews are an important wider backdrop um, which may go beyond the protections provided by the Ireland Northern Ireland Protocol and the work of the dedicated mechanism. Therefore, we need to be very mindful about um, protections that we may have for Northern Ireland and the uh, overlap between the government's potential ambitions to deal with um, domestic remedies when freed beyond the idea that the EU law will continue to have supremacy, which it clearly won't from the 1st of uh, January 2021. So I think that that's me. Okay, thank you very much. Um, we'll move then to maybe some, some questions and discussion, and um, I suppose I, I, I can make a start on those, but um, don't, don't feel that all three need to answer each one. If somebody feels it's more relevant, because... Um, there's seven or eight members and, and we get three responses dates we'll be here to, to Christmas um, but maybe if I can begin by maybe if somebody wants to give a sense of the aftermath of 
the internal market bill because I think it's left a real bad taste amongst a considerable number of people that things that were so definite were up for grabs. And I suppose, you know, th there's been a process, you had to engage in a process with various legislators and individuals to try and overcome what was suggested in there. And I suppose maybe it's just to get a sense from yourselves from an independent perspective. Do you think it was an unintended outcome that, that rights potentially could have been impacted? Or do you think it was just a lack of care that rights may have been impacted? Or do you think it was just too blinkered on uh, resolving Brexit and that, that things weren't noticed? But it has left concern. And do you share those concerns within your various commissions? Maybe that's one for me to go ahead. kick off on. And then, um, yeah, yes, we do, is the um, succinct answer. Um, it's pretty clear to me that it sends out um, an underwhelming message when you say we're prepared to breach international law, even if it's only for a short time in a specified period. If you reach an agreement and then start to unpick it having reached it, frankly, whether that's for tactical or for other reasons, it sends out a very negative message about can you trust the UK government in other spheres. In terms of the human rights issues, and it gives me back to my last point, um, we're pleased to see those clauses that have been removed. The clauses included that you couldn't challenge this bill in specific under specific parts of the Human Rights Act. So we began to move into provisions that somehow said the Human Rights Act will not apply to certain parts of legislation. Um, that fills me, I have to say, with a degree of gloom when I look at the independent review of the Human Rights Act and are we getting the balance between the executive um, uh, and legislature and um, judiciary and the role of the courts right? Because it suggests that that was not just necessarily a short-term ambition to deal with a specific issue around negotiating. Um, and I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to, to take that particular view. And I suppose leading on maybe to that, that review, um, I, and I am by no means an expert in this, so correct me if, if I stray to the wrong sides of this, but um, many of the, the human rights that we have have been protected through judgments that have been taken in court, and this review is potentially reviewing the connection between EU courts and domestic courts, but if it's suddenly decided that the domestic courts shouldn't have some sort of input uh, or in terms of protecting rights, that maybe wouldn't play too well here, where so many rights have been protected through judgments. Is, is that a fair assessment? And is there a way of safeguarding moving forward that that doesn't, or, or inputting to that process of that review, that that, 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 that consideration? Yeah, the, the, the issue, the government have been very clear, it's not about looking at the substantive rights that are contained, uh, that are covered by um, the Human Rights Act, so we're not opening up the convention rights, as I understand it, from the terms of reference. But we are looking at the machinery. I think Robert Buckland talked about the machinery, um, the balance. Um, the Strasbourg Court talks about rights that must be real and practical, not theoretical and illusory. And 
The devil, of course, will be in the detail of this. We'll have to see what exactly it is. It's an independent review, um, but it's pretty clear that if the government thought the balance was right, they wouldn't be conducting both an independent review, commissioning an independent review of both judicial review and the Human Rights Act. So it's pretty clear the UK government does not see that balance as being the balance that they wish. We know what's likely to come down the track next year. We've been presaged their intention to look again at fixed parliaments and the right of parliament to prorogue, etc. So it's pretty clear that this government um, does not view the judiciary and its role um, in terms of perhaps the, the traditional role of the three pillars um, and wants to find a way, frankly, of, I suspect, having a degree more autonomy than it does. And in both of these reviews, they've talked about the kind of interventions around policy making and what the role of the court should be in intervening about policy making. And the courts are an important bulwark in terms of uh, and an important safeguard in terms of uh, both human rights and wider kind of uh, uh, scrutiny of, of policy, and, and legitimately so, along with the executive and along with the legislature. Mr Chairman, I, it's my understanding that existing case law um, that has gone through the judicial process before the transition period still stands on statute books, and mm. that's not to be sort of revisited as such, but um, would become part of a bigger issue. And I suppose maybe some of the difficulty in this is it, it can be, though the, that review can be quite abstract at the minute, but forward weighing 20 years and it may, decisions could be taken as a result of what's been decided now in a review and could really impact people's day and daily lives. And that's, that's why uh, it's critically important that there's a commission such as yourselves assessing and reviewing and inputting into that process and, and that there's that level of independence for you as well. So... You know, that, that's critically important. I think that right, that's right. And clearly, both of these reviews were independent reviews. Um, um, so we'll have to see what each of them makes of the terms of reference that they've been given. Um, I guess part of our role is to, um, to make sure that we have an input and that Northern Ireland voice is heard in this, and particularly so when you've also got the protocol. So it seems to me that in terms of the remedies and some of the issues, there are there is a potential Venn diagram where there is a potential, as I say, overlap between the work of those two independent reviews and any outcomes and the work the work of the of the protocol and the the safeguards and the non diminution commitment that was made by the UK government around the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Okay and, and finally for me um we spoke on, our, on your last visit about the, the fact that at the moment, or from the 31st of December, our rights are side by side, but there is the potential for divergence as we go forward, and that there might have been a need for a memorandum of understanding between the UK and the EU to keep an eye on those rights to make sure that, that if there are any step changes, that that's being observed. Has that been progressed or developed or...? We've had some discussion on it um, amongst the three of us as to how best we might move on this issue. Um, presently, uh, we are fortunate in that um, Sinead is very close to the Irish government's role in, in all of that it's discussion and planning for any amendments to legislation. So we have the benefit of Sinead's input into that. 
We also have the likes of uh, Equinet, where we, I think, will be continuing our membership of that, and there will be dialogue on that process. But as to whether or not Northern Ireland is a consultee in that process, we shouldn't be under the terms of the, the exit from the European Union. But however, we do need to find a way of being able to try to exert influence if we are expected to keep pace with EU legislation, then it's to our benefit to be able to have some influence in that. But at present time, there is no clear channel as to how that could be developed, and it's something that we have been discussing. And Sinead might want to add on that specific issue, because we, we're very concerned about how we might do this. Well, just add briefly um, that exactly as, as Jeremy has pointed out, I mean, we are in the, 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 the position whereby because it is law that affects us and that it, it is operational in our jurisdiction, that we will be able to um, have in our sights and in our, our minds the, the obvious um, uh, equivalence concept and, and work with our, our the two Northern Ireland Commissions um, to make sure that any any issues are flagged in advance that we anticipate coming down the line, um, so it, it's just something that I think will be uh, a potential advantage as, as that progresses. But I think, like Geraldine said, it's just uh, that Northern Ireland's role within that process is is, is not clear to me. Uh, you know, and exactly, obviously, there's not going to be any influence coming from Northern Ireland in terms of the development of those rights at a European level. So um, it's it's really. I suppose again hypothetical at the moment or just unclear exactly how, how it's going to play out but we will do everything we can to assist um you know we work very closely together as you can see anyway and, and we will continue to do so but this is something that would be very much front of front of mind for us as we as we continue okay thank you i'm going to pass the deputy chair to, to doug uh, thanks chair um and thank you all for for for, for your, your your briefing i mean it's always uh, it's always great to hear where we're going, and, and, and I think we all want to be going in the same direction, and, and certainly trust is something that's really in, important, uh, but it has to be uh, underpinned by the, by the right legislation. You know, you, when you look back at, at everything that's on, on, on go now, if we were sitting here today and we were talking about there going to be a border between uh, Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, um, I, I guess yous would be really digging into the equality and the human rights issue in regards to that. Um, but many British citizens in Northern Ireland will see that their rights may well have been diminished by a border east-west down the Irish Sea. Um, uh, and also the fact is that we are having to follow many EE rules but have no say on them. So there's a democratic deficit in that as well. Could I maybe just ask from, from all of you, have you taken the time to dig into that to make sure that with these being put in place that there is no rights being diminished in regards to those people who view themselves purely uh, as, as British? Yeah, I think it's something that we are very conscious of. Um, and I know that there was a meeting with officials from both commissions and with the Northern Ireland office today. And that's something that they have been discussing. Um, we believe that there's uh, input from the joint uh, working consultative working group, and they should be, have a role in, in keeping the three commissions informed of what's happening. Uh, I'm very conscious, very mindful of the fact that um, people of a British and unionist persuasion will feel that there is um, potentially a threat to the east-west relationships contained within the, the current status. However, we'll be working to ensure that that issue is fully explored and there is no diminution of rights in that regard. Yeah, I'll maybe add a, a, some of the work that the Joint Committee has done. Um, the identity rights that are within the 
1998 agreement um, the right to uh, to consider yourself British or Irish or both without effectively any adverse consequences is not part of the section that forms the um, um, the work of the dedicated mechanism, the non-diminution commitment. But during the negotiations, we've raised both with UK government, Irish government, and um, European Commission two sets of questions. One, um, in earlier uh, the December 2017 agreement, um, it was agreed between the EU and the UK that uh, people of Northern Ireland, to use the phrase of, of the kind of uh, 1998 agreement, who consider themselves Irish would retain their EU law rights. We've made a number of representations that for that to be consonant with the 1998 agreement, that must apply to the people of Northern Ireland, whether they identify themselves as British or Irish or both. And we've never really got to the bottom of that. Although it was interesting that when we looked like we were heading for a, a, a no deal uh, previously, the Irish government announced that it would guarantee the European health insurance cards for all the people of Northern Ireland. Um, and I guess if we end up without a deal, there is a prospect of, of that happening again. And I would expect it again to be everyone in Northern Ireland, regardless of their, of their identity. Um, so we've raised that, for example, as, as, one, as an example of where British identity needs to be recognised and, and protected. On the other side of that equation, uh, the Joint Committee produced a legal analysis of UK immigration law. UK immigration law assumes that everybody is born British, whether you choose to identify that way or not. Um, and that has a number of ramifications. Um, we spent a great deal of time, uh, produced a kind of potential solution to that, which uh, would have still entailed people being born British as such in the law, but would have been, would have allowed very uh, readily accessible ways for those who don't identify as, as British to be able to identify as Irish and retain all of their kind of um, immigration law rights and, and their identity rights under the agreement. And frankly, it goes back to 2010 when, in response to the Commission's Bill of Rights, it was one of the things that the UK government recognised we needed to put into a Bill of Rights was the recognition in effect of domestic law of those identity provisions so that nobody was affected adversely either way. Um, now, we have had some progress in what I might call a short-term fi quick fix in terms of immigration rules and, and allowing, for example, family reunion. It, it led to Emma D'Souza's case uh, being withdrawn and being resolved, but it is a quick fix. Uh, if you enter into a relationship after the 31st of December, or if you don't apply before the 30th of June, then you're back into the same set of issues. So I would anticipate we will have another Emma D'Souza case at some point coming towards us. So the, the issues you are, you're outlining about identity rights, there are issues for both those who identify as Irish and British. I think the Joint Committee has interrogated both sides of, 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 those, of, of that coin. And, and, and the, the democratic deficit? How, do we, how are we scoring this? I mean, if, we, if we're looking at this, if we, if we just look at this in, in primary colours and, and we're talking about equality and human rights, um, how are we squaring this 
democratic deficit, whereas I'm being held to a EU um, uh, rule or law without representation. Yeah. But other people, just across the border from me, no distance, maybe a mile from somebody else, is is not. Yeah. How do we how do we score that? Well, that's the very point that I was trying to allude to earlier on in terms of the fact that we recognise there's that democratic deficit. We don't have the power here in Northern Ireland to influence, despite the fact that we are required to keep pace. Um, that has advantages, but it also has a disadvantages in that we can't um, exert that degree of influence to make it fit our needs maybe that little bit better. But we are outside the EU, so we haven't been given direction as to how that will work. It's something that we're going to continue to explore and to try to exert influence on. But at the minute, it is that unknown that we don't have an answer to, and there is nothing anywhere that gives us any direction as to how that will work. And that's where I was referring to the close working relationship that we have with Sinead and her team, that we can get some information and use our influence through their good offices. But I don't believe that's necessarily sufficient. Um, but it's still very much unknown. Hi. I know that's not the answer that you're hoping no, to get, I, I, but we are I, conscious of that and gap. I, and I get, no, and I guess, I guess I absolutely get that, and I absolutely get mm. and, and, and even if I look at the complicated... I could even dig myself down a hole here. I could get mm. lost myself. It gets that complicated when you start get, getting into that. But, but if, you're, if you're sitting here uh, as, a, as a Northern Ireland unionist mm -hmm. uh, and you're talking about where you feel, uh, whether they are or not, where you feel your rights are being diminished by a border that has been placed um, uh, east-west, mm -hmm. and there has been, mm -hmm. uh, and we can argue the reasons why, whenever. But if you're if you're sitting here and you see people who are willing to put out statements to the British government to say that internal market bill is a danger to the rights uh, and equality of people living in Northern Ireland but maybe not quite so willing to do the same to the European Union, to say, well, what you're pressing for here is diminishing the rights of people in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. it, you, you kind of get a sense, and I'm not saying it is, a, it is the case, but I'm just saying from, from where, where I sit or where my constituents sit, there, there just seems to be that process where, where it's a, a British or Unionist citizen whose rights are being diminished. They don't feel that scope of people screaming for their... Yeah. I, 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 I understand that, that perception. I, I would say two things. One, we very vigorously pursued the equality of identity and those issues with, with the European Commission. So it's, it's not, and, and both publicly um, uh, as well as kind of privately, that the, that the, the asymmetry of rights is not in, in accord with the spirit and intention of the agreement. In terms of what I suppose the larger democratic deficit, um, it's it's about keeping pace with equality and non-discrimination rights. Uh, I don't think anyone in Northern Ireland should should fear that uh, if the UK government decided, and, and I have to say in our meetings with the UK government, they have time and again said they have no intention of of unpicking equality and anti-discrimination laws. But if the EU was to was to move more quickly then I don't think that, um, yes, there is a potential gap between Northern Ireland and elsewhere, but that's a gap that I personally will live with because it's about providing equality protections and non-discrimination in employment and social security and access to goods and services 
um, in self-employment, and those seem to me to be a good thing. Um, now, I recognise we have to make sure that people understand why equality and human rights are a good thing for everyone in Northern Ireland, but I think they are, and therefore I don't think there's anything to fear about keeping pace with EU law. Um, and if Northern Ireland, um, which has been behind in many ways uh, in terms of um, protections in the last few years, was to frankly move ahead of the UK again, then I won't lose any sleep personally at night because of that. But I do understand the wider point you're making yeah, about, and, about and the perception. It is, it is a wider point. I think we had a discussion about this now, actually, about, yeah. about the UK, maybe their rights, getting outstripping the EU's, you know. Yes. Uh, and, and, and then you suddenly have Northern Ireland having to keep pace with GB in order for people from Northern Ireland to be able to work into the market in GB. So yeah. actually then outstripping, and that's a, that's a good thing for Northern Ireland. Yeah. But, but you can... You, I, I should say I won't lose any sleep either no, if the UK the, outstrips the EU and we get greater protection, yeah, so... But it's a wider, it's a wider yes. sort of thing. It's that a much wider issue to it. And, yeah. you know, we are continuing to explore the scope of the directives and other aspects of legislation that are covered by it. And as they arise or as we discover those, we will pursue it because it's about equality for everybody yeah. in Northern Ireland and Absolutely. treating everyone the same. So it's still very much on our radar. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Martina. Um, thank you all for, for the presentation. And I think picking up where Doug left off because... Um, the EU is not a panacea for rights, but it's better than what we have at the moment. Um, so when we're talking about no diminution of our rights, whatever the highest standards, and that's why we need a Bill of Rights here that's going to offer rights protections for everyone. And, and I just want to say to Doug, as when I was an MEP, I was the only one when there was two other unionists who brought Jim Allister over to the Commission to talk to the Commission about the issue of identity rights, because I don't want a situation here, we don't want a situation here where those of us who are Irish are afforded to keep our EU rights and those of you who identify as British are not. And so, I mean, we are all arguing for everyone here and across the island to, to have the same kind of rights protection, but it goes back to the issue of nationality and law and the national law that exists in relation to its application here. It would be good for people in the Republican nationalist community to hear that we should be able to identify as Irish and not have our rights uh, stripped away from us because of uh, a law that bestows on us an unwanted gift of, uh, of being British. So, and it's in that context, I think it was Julie, maybe you started off and, and Les, you picked up about the movement of, of goods and the focus that has gone into trade. And like, without doubt, there seems to be more attention being given to the movement of cows and sheep than they are the movement of you and I in terms of protections and the unfettered access that people are talking about across the island, uh, whatever about the common travel area, because that's not embedded in law. So the gap that could emerge, um, EU citizens living here. Last night we had a debate in the chamber and some of the um, participants in that debate claimed once again that some of us were scaremongering and having EU citizens living here feeling unwanted and unwelcome and they were going because we were pointing out. So I would like to ask about, um, in the context of the, the Windrush scandal, and 
those people who are here that aren't covered by the common travel area, so they don't have those kind of protections. Settled standards, do they have to apply for it? Because it was being assumed last night, because the British government had said that they'd be okay then, that they can live here and they don't have to apply for anything and they would still retain the same EU rights that they have. <laughs> what, what happens to EU uh, citizens who are living here that made this place thankfully their home and who are wanted and who are welcome, but we want to also see them protected? Are they protected? Under Automatically? Yeah, under less, it's a um, rights issue. Yeah. If you've applied through the EU settlement scheme... Um, what if you haven't? Sorry. Well, the, the, yeah, let, let's do it. The, the EU settlement scheme and the pre-settled status, uh, assuming um, you remain here for long enough, then you should have the same rights as anybody else. Um, now, there's clearly issues about what happens to those people who, for whatever reason, haven't applied to the EU settlement scheme, even though they would qualify um, over it. UK government has said it will look at extending it potentially beyond. Uh, I'm not sure about the detail of how that will look. So EU citizens who have been here and have applied um, to the settlement scheme and have settled status have the same rights as anyone else. Um, frontier workers, in other words, people moving um, across the border to work, I have to say at a very late stage, but we now have the, the rules and a, um, uh, to apply for the Frontier Workers Scheme. It also will, will continue to apply. You can make applications up until the end of June. Um, and again, if, if a Frontier Worker applies and has that status, the practical issues are going to be how are we going to manage our borders? If you remember, the, the, the rhetoric was about regaining control of our laws and our borders, etc., and we're going to have an open border for, for um, uh, obvious political kind of reasons, and, and, and people move across the border every day, and we are going to have people who move across the border exercising their common travel area rights, both north-south, south-north, we're going to have frontier workers, you'll have people who are here from the EU, you'll have people uh, here from in, in other kinds of um, immigration status. How are we going to police that? What kind of controls? The worry has always been, and this was particularly on the southern side of the border, you stop a bus, you stop a train, how do you decide you're stopping somebody at random? Well, I can say, and as a public transport user, I've never been stopped at random and asked for my passport or documents, but I have seen on a number of occasions people whose skin is a different color from mine who have. And so how do we avoid those kinds of approaches? Um, because I don't know how, if it's intelligence-led, you're going to know who's on a bus from Belfast to Dublin, Derry to Dublin, and who and on what basis you would stop somebody um, on an intelligence-led basis. Um, so those are the practical kind of outworkings of issues. Those who are entitled to be here and for some reason fail to apply, and how will we manage the borders and our new immigration laws, which will be that if you're an EU citizen and you decide you want to come to uh, the UK after we've left the European Union for the first time, you are going to have to go through a points-based system. It's going to be, there'll be schemes, obviously, for students. There'll be a small kind of seasonal um, workers' scheme still. 
uh, how will that be managed and how will you divine whether somebody from Poland is here because they are here under the settlement scheme or somebody hypothetically from Poland has arrived for the first time and doesn't have a basis for being here and how is all of that going to be managed and I'm not sure that we have the kind of answers that would give um, you know uh, a real sense of um, reassurance that all of that is going to work seamlessly once we leave the EU. So just so that I understand so the potential and I believe it's already happening of racial profiling? Well that uh, we've certainly I've had correspondence come across my desk for human rights NGOs for example expressing the concern in the past about um, the arrangements for how people are checked and on what basis that's done. Um, I have to say, whenever it's been raised, it's always been said that, no, it's not based on, there is no kind of racial profiling, etc. But it's very difficult to see the anecdotal evidence suggests that you're much more likely, I can remember cases the Equality Commission um, uh, took and successfully where you had people who had perfectly lawful right to be here were being stopped and detained for quite significant periods of time and the Equality Commission intervened and ended up um, government paying compensation to people who were uh, stopped and there was no basis for doing it. So those are, those are the worries um, and we're just going to have to be vigilant to see what happens. In the points-based system that you spoke about, all of that is evidence that it's not business as usual? Well, the the points-based system the points you will acquire depend on your qualifications, the level of salary. So there are a number of things that suggest that they are designed to to look at the high end, if you like, of of kind of migrants and uh, migrants with particular skills rather than the, the low-skilled uh, migration. And I've seen from a number of the organisations that, that deal with these issues have expressed concern that in the absence of of um, a kind of managed way of migration, will you find people trying to bring people in at a lower end? And if you, if you bring people in unlawfully, um, then nearly always those people will find it very difficult in terms of um, they, they tend to be in jobs that are exploited, etc. And that's been raised about how will we manage that. Um, now, the government have said that the reason they don't want us to become a low-skilled migrant economy and that's fine if you, for example, in, in nursing homes and care homes are going to pay the kind of rates for residents that are publicly funded that allow those homes to employ people at the salaries that, that meet those requirements. But I don't see much evidence that the government are about to put that kind of money into funding care. So the government has to, if it's going to say on the one hand we don't want to be a low-skilled migrant reliant on low-skilled migrant labour that's exploited perfectly proper, then fund the kind of arrangements that allow, for example, in social care, for you to avoid that kind of thing happening. And people who could have left the EU um, would like to leave the EU as EU citizens, as they are, and come here, but instead of arriving here as EU citizens, they will arrive as migrants. Well, it, you, you'll still but be able to come here for holidays. And, nothing has changed. Everything's changed for those people. Yeah. Can I just add that anyone who lives here in Northern Ireland is entitled to the protection of our equality laws. 
And Les has already referred to some successful cases that we have um, assisted people with where they have been subject to racial profiling, etc. But they are still covered by the equality legislation that's here. Thank you. Thank you, John. Okay. Um, nobody on the um, Starleaf has indicated that they wish to speak by raising their hand. Very much like we're in school now, doesn't it? But it, it's a little <laughs> function that is actually available there. Um, so if I just give a few <laughs> seconds to see if that that um, rouses anybody there. Um, okay, no. Uh, yes, Emma I have. So uh, Emma Sheeran would like to come okay. in. Come on ahead, Emma. It takes just a little second for it to, to kick in. Yeah, go on ahead, Emma. Sorry, I just feel like this here. <laughs> <laughs> cross-border services, uh, the Roma and traveller communities um, who with their nomadic lifestyle will face uh, additional challenges now. But really, I suppose there's there's any uh, length of, of, of examples we could look at, and, and unfortunately, as of yet, it's, it's all hypothetical. I mean, you know, these are, are specific um, experiences that people have. We know that there's 30,000 people crossing, crossing the border on a daily basis. Um, and that those people will be impacted. And from the discussion you've just heard, obviously the group who are probably going to be most immediately impacted, who are front of mind for me, are those people resident in, in the southern border counties who are um, EU residents, or EU citizens, but not Irish, because the common uh, travel area uh, safeguards do not apply to them. Um, so, so those are some of the, 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 the major concerns that we have. Uh, the racial profiling that's been mentioned um, and human trafficking are another two issues uh, that are on our radar. Um, and I suppose, I mean, just even from the comments that you've just heard, I suppose it's about the administrative responses to that. So um, if, if, those, if, if we're unclear, which we are, as to exactly the mechanics of how those uh, administrative um, measures are going to be put in place to ensure um, that Brexit is enforced essentially, um, regardless of whether or not we have a border, the appearance of a border may start to emerge, I suppose, and it's that wider view that we are always conscious of in terms of the north-south cooperation that we enjoy, which is there because of a lack of border. Um, and that's, I suppose, part of part of that bigger picture is, is what exactly are the mechanics, what, it, what is going to be the day-to-day -day experience of people who live so close to the border and whose daily lives just don't see it at the moment and, and which all of a sudden will see it. 
Um, so, so I suppose those are, those are some of the additional ones. I mean, I know in previous sessions um, there was uh, reference to, for example, somebody travelling across the border with a, with a uh, an assistance animal, a, a, a guide dog, for example, um, and, and the movement of, of animals in, itself is, is another question. But I mean, I think until January, until we start to see, and, and it'll be the two commissions uh, represented in, in, there in person by Liza Geraldine, that we'll see the, the majority of these um, uh, queries coming through, and I think it will be a slow build-up from January 1st as to people's experience as, as things start to dawn and the experience starts to, to, to really slowly impact on people's lives. Thanks, Shane. Um, that, that is useful, I suppose, in your earlier um, presentation and in everything that you've just sort of compounded there. The, the thing that we're getting on again is the confusion and it's the lack of information. So, you know, you're sort of trying to anticipate what the issues will be, but with less information than you need. And I know this morning I took part in an event organised by WRDA, um, which was focusing on the EU settlement scheme and the concerns that are coming through around the tight time frame, the lack of information that's been made available. And my big concern, I know, as a constituency MLA in an area where we have quite a high population of migrant workers from various parts of Europe, I have very particular concerns about um, people from some of the Portuguese colonies that would be, would be based around the South Tyrone, um, Cookstown and Gallon area. And I know that people in those communities that are, are working in our meat processing plants and in our dairy factories, and an awful lot of the time, there are a lot of them in one house, they're living in cramped living conditions. 2020 has been difficult for them already with COVID-19, zero-hour contracts, all of the issues that have had to come through this year, then you add the language barrier and then the confusion around, you know, if someone is living in the north and working in the south or living in the south, working in the north, and whether for them, they're unsure if the frontier scheme or settlements that they should be into. And I just, I, I'm concerned, I know that the has referred there to the potential of an extension from the British government, but my worry is that we are going to come to the confession that said that in extended circumstances they're going to accept the applications or you know, if someone ha ha meets certain criteria they will accept the late application. But if it's just genuine lack of knowledge or lack of information and people don't realise what it is they should be applying to, and bearing in mind the language barrier, I, I, would, I would be worried about that. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about then was, uh, I mean, I know uh, Les and Geraldine referred to the, at the start to the fact that we have lost some of the worrying clauses out of the internal market bill and some of the clauses from part five that were causing great concern around the, the lack of right to JR and some of the things that threaten to break international law. But I'm just worrying from, from your perspective as the, the three bodies that are, are trying to deal with the non-diminution of rights principle, whether or not you still have concerns or in that, or if your trust in British government and doing the right thing in terms of this it is restored. I think I'll, I'll let uh, Les take that one, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's not a matter of, of trust or otherwise. Um, why we wanted, or why we, the two commissions put the amendment down was to put it beyond doubt in the legislation. It became clear we, we weren't going to get that um, and we wouldn't have succeeded with kind of parliamentary votes with, with that. Um, but um, through the, no, the negotiation, 
what it, it was important that the correspondence that we did get is kind of on the record and in the public domain. The Hansard debate set out where the government is. Um, as part of the discussion, it was agreed to make sure it was read into the record about what the government's position is on that. Does that give an absolute cast iron? You could never take some legal action around the Internal Market Bill and the protocol. We think it, it will be a, a great deal more difficult to do that with those um, reassurances kind of in the public domain. And I think that's probably as good a result as we could have got, bearing in mind um, that you know the government has a significant majority and if it wants to get its way in uh, the House of Commons, uh, then it eventually almost certainly can do so. So I think it's a decent result. I think um, uh, it's uh, um, at least something that is, um, says something about the UK government that they finally were prepared to accept that there was an issue here and to give us the reassurances that we were looking for. So I'm, um, I guess, as sanguine as I possibly can be that we've achieved something that's worthwhile and it shows the value of the work of the two commissions in doing that. Okay, you have enough, Emma? Yeah, I don't know if I would say that I'm happy. I'm not really happy. I suppose, just to, I mean, as somebody has raised anyone that as should be an MLA, I don't trust the, the British government and the actions of the past couple of weeks um, have sort of compounded that for me. Um, but no, I, I appreciate the, the work that's been done, and I mean, with, uh, everyone in terms of rights. It's, it's, it's very serious and, and concerning, so um, thanks for the presentation, Ian, and for, for the answers. Okay, thank you, Emma. And we, we have no other um, indications of anybody to speak there. So look, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much indeed for your presentation. Very complex, very complicated, but utterly fascinating. And, and I, I've enjoyed all of the presentations that we've had to date from yourselves. I think it is something that we do need to keep that watching brief on because there could be significant changes, as I referenced earlier, that could have massive ramifications in the future. Uh, and it's great that we've got people with your, like yourselves with the understanding that you have and the ability to see what's been discussed now and the impact that it can have in the future. So we certainly appreciate the work and we appreciate all three of you giving up your time for us today. So thank you very much indeed. And I wish you all a very happy Christmas, as good as it can be, and, yeah. a, and a happy new year. And the same to all of you as well. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll see you again early enough in the new year as well. Hopefully not too early. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Chair. <laughs> okay. Thank you now. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Permission to leave the room, sir? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> detention. Yeah. A thousand lines. Oh, don't. Brings back those days. A thousand lines from the EU withdrawal agreement. <laughs> Thanks. Cheerio. Thanks, is this your coat? Oh, uh, I thought I left. That's mine. No, no, that's not. No, no. No, no. No, that's Trevor's. No, that's Trevor's. And a ticket. Okay, thank you.
Okay, members, we'll move on um, and try and move as quick as we can. We, we nearly ran over by an hour there, but um, you know it was conversations worth having. So we'll move to item six, which is the January 2021 monitoring round. We've received a written briefing. It's at page 76 of the meeting pack and 71 of the table pack. It was agreed at last week's meeting to change the scheduled oral evidence session on the January monitoring round to a written briefing. Are there any comments that any members wish to make on the uh, written briefing? Okay, that's fine. We will just note the contents of that and we can see where things come after. Um, item 7 is the forward work programme. It's on page 79 of the meeting pack. Are members content to note the forward work plan? Yep. Okay. Um, page 85 of the meeting pack is correspondence from the Joint Committee on the EU Affairs, thanking the committee for the invitation and opportunity to engage with ourselves. The Joint Committee has expressed a desire to continue to enhance inter-parliamentary relations post-Brexit. Um, so should we suggest maybe uh, if we include the, maybe another interaction with them on the forward work plan? We can add it to it and maybe fine-tune the dates in the future. Would members agree with that? Okay. No disagreement. We'll take that as agreement. Uh, item 8 is correspondence. There are 8 items of correspondence, page 562 to 600 of the meeting pack and 79 of the tabled pack. Uh, there is a response included at page 87 from the Executive Office to issues raised at the oral evidence session of the October monitoring round. The Department has provided further information on the Northern Ireland Investment Fund and investments to be made before the end of the financial year and details of spend uh, on data analytics in relation to COVID-19. Are members content to note that? Yep. Uh, there is a copy of correspondence from the Committee of Health to the First and Deputy First Minister regarding the increase in referrals to the St Vincent de Paul charity during COVID-19 pandemic. The Committee has asked the First and Deputy First Minister for an update on progress to the anti-poverty strategy. Um, given that the anti-poverty strategy is something within the Department of the Executive Office, I suggest that maybe we ask for a copy of that response to sort of keep up to date on where the anti-poverty strategy is. Members be happy enough with that? Okay. Uh, if you're happy enough, then we'll, could, we'll note the rest of the correspondence unless anybody wants to raise any item. Okay. Uh, Chairman's business. I don't have any other business. Is there any other business from members? Okay, then maybe just at that, just two items then for me under any other business. Number one, can I thank the staff for all of their work right throughout the year. Uh, we're, this is the last meeting of 2020 and I know that we've been uh, through a considerable year, a difficult year, but we've done a lot of work uh, from we got back together again in January and we've met a lot more than probably would have happened during uh, normal times. Uh, as a result of COVID and Brexit. So I want to thank members for their attendance and contributions throughout the year, but to thank the staff for the work that they do in producing all of the packs and producing, uh, working with all the panellists that come along to give us information. I want to thank them for that. And of course, I think I have to mention that for Marie, this is her last meeting. Um, the uh, clerks are doing their um, I don't know how often it happens, but the, there's a... It's a bit of a shuffle in, in January now, I'll definitely be leaving, so... And, yeah, so we want to thank you, Marie, for your thank work you. in guiding us this year. You've kept us right where 
most of us are, are we're new to this committee and new to this work and you've been able to keep us on the straight and narrow and that has been greatly appreciated and it was a very very steep learning curve and you've been a good teacher to us this year so thank you very much indeed and wish you all the very very best with your next endeavour and I'm sure we know that as you're still working in the building we'll be able to draw yes. on your experience as well so thank you very much indeed so members enjoy Christmas as best we can please be safe as best we can and let's hope that we can all get back together again in January and hopefully things will be improving all round. But thank you very much indeed and goodbye. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, back at justice. I don't know. Happy Christmas everyone. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Yeah. We had a different approach.